we have a tease of him riding the Alaskan bullworm of Arrakis. I saw it. It's big, scary, and pink. Not the only worm that we'll be talking about today. I love all these like, hey, we're going to talk. Hey, hey, Brandon and I are always tying everything together. everyone and welcome to episode 49 of plot devices we're here it's the beginning of summer blockbuster season and that is a, a big foreboding storm on the horizon for a lot of reasons as we'll get into i am one of your hosts brandon king alongside my uh, co-captain here in the storm noah guzman uh noah how are you doing today how are you doing in your life and uh yeah what's going on I just recently attended a trivia night where I thought I was going to not place last, but lo and behold, there was a team in last and maybe it was mine. But one of the questions that was asked at last night's trivia was, you know, what what is the name of this writer's strike? What is the name of the uh, union of this writer's strike going on right now in Hollywood? And that was one of the few, because there were a few of the questions that I got right. So as soon as we dip into today's topics, you'll see that uh, I'm, I'm ready and excited to discuss today's news. And then, you know, long awaited my review for Evil Dead Rise, you know, this was one of the most anticipated films for me during this 2023. So once we get out, uh, once we get over to our review portion of today's episode, um, I'm also just to dive into, you know, the dissecting of all that is the new Evil Dead film. But otherwise, everything's been good. How are you, Brandon? Let's just say some of the stuff we have for today is going to be a lot to talk about. Uh, You mentioned the movie about the bow who is afraid. Uh, That'll be a lot to get into. We'll try and keep it as spoiler free as we can. But uh, no promises there. We're also going to be talking about Suzume, which is the uh, director of Your Name, his brand new uh, anime feature out of Japan, Evil Dead Rise. I'm going to be talking about Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret, new trailers out of CinemaCon. We have to start with the biggest thing, which you, of course, foreshadow, which is probably going to take up way too much time, and it probably should, because Noah, this is probably going to wind up being the biggest entertainment news story of the year, if not one of the biggest stories of the year in terms of just news sphere and journalism. For those of you unaware, and I will, I have tried, I have stressed for the last 48 hours in trying to condense all of the news that has come out for you guys into as much of a package as I can. So please bear with me. Uh, the Writers Guild of America, you have probably heard they are going on strike. What is up with that? Around late March, April, the Writers Guild of America, which for those of you who don't know, is basically the union that represents the majority, if not the vast majority of the script writers, feature writers, staff writers, Any writer that is basically working in Hollywood nowadays has some connection to or is a member of the WGA, either the West or East branches. That represents around 20,000 members as of, I think, 2018. It might have gone up or down since then, but it's around that. They had had uh, negotiations with all the major studios, so that's Disney, that's uh, Warner Bros. Discovery, to try and get a lot of things. We'll get into that. They had voted 97% back in April that they would go on strike if if those negotiations had broken down. Wednesday, those negotiations had broken down, leading to a full-blown strike of the entertainment industry. All the members have uh, refused to work on any large-scale studio projects until their demands are met. There are a lot of other caveats towards then. Uh, There are a lot of other uh, showings of solidarity. Uh, SAG-AFTRA has shown their solidarity with that as well. Uh, I believe the Writers Guild of Britain has announced a statement that they will not send writers over, which has been a big concern, and we'll pop into why that is uh, in just a moment. 
but I'm going to be leaving a lot of links in the description below. Please go read all of them. There is some terrific reporting out there on all of this. Uh, this specific one is from Dominic Patton from Deadline. He did an interview with Ellen Stutzman, who is the chief negotiator for the WGA. This is part of that interview talking about her relationship with the AMPTP, a.k.a. the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, who is responsible for all this. Uh, quote, I wish they, the AMPTP, were willing to give us anything more than the very modest increases that don't even address inflation and certainly don't get into the decline in pay that writers have seen over the past decade. We are always willing to talk. Now it's really on the companies, the studios, the streamers to decide if they really want to end the pain that they're inflicting on everyone. I'll just say that the amount of money that they have spent and continue to spend on the content that writers create makes it clear that they are absolutely in need of writers. So they're going to have to come and make a deal. End quote. Now, in terms of those asks, you might be wondering about that. Uh, the WGA did release a document of their demands and their negotiations with the Producers Guild. Chief among those was for TV writers in keeping writers' rooms to a minimum of six, basically a minimum of six writers per six-episode series. That was considered a non-starter and flat-out rejected by the studios. Also rejected in their current state were demands for higher rewards based on higher uh, based on higher viewed programs across streaming services. You can imagine why Netflix was trepidatious because they don't release their numbers on that, among other reasons. Pensions and health benefits requiring half of writing staff to be involved through production so writers would be on sets and getting producer credits. Um, as well as, you've probably heard about this as well, regulating AI not be used as source material. That was not flat out rejected. That was instead responded with, quote, annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology, end quote. So it was not flat out turned down, but it was basically saying, we're not going to regulate this as it is. Uh, notably, the AMPTS did allow did agree to allow entry-level staff writers to receive script fees, which was not a thing before, and was willing, apparently, to go higher with premiums being asked of the uh, AMTP overall. There are already, however, ramifications far and away across the uh, industry right now. Most late-night shows have been put on basically hold for right now. Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, they both use their time to support their writers' rooms. Also notable, Jimmy Fallon at the Met Gala did support his writers. However, one of his staff writers, uh, Sarah Cobos, who is not with the WGA but is still on staff, basically said that he wasn't there at the meeting where NBC decided to make them, quote, active employees who wouldn't be paid. So take that for whatever it is worth. Uh, also showing support, Keita Brunson, who her show Abbott Elementary is being put on hold, obviously, for its third season. Yellow Jacket season three is being put on hold. Season six of Cobra Kai is being put on hold. All of those shows in some way or another have shown support with the strike. Now, across the country, picketers have already taken to studio offices with signs that included some, frankly, terrific signs. Uh, including pay your writers or we'll spoil succession, and you came up with Quibi. Among them are Simpsons writer Al Jean, The Fablemans writer Tony Kushner, Dope Sick creator Danny Strong, and actors ranging from Wanda Sykes, Jillian Jacobs, uh, Clark Gregg from Agents of the Shield, Natasha Leone from Russian Doll, Rob Lowe was on there, Jay Leno was passing out donuts to the LA protesters, which was a very weird video, but kind of cool. Um, finally, it was also reported just as of Wednesday afternoon, Disney, Netflix, and Warner Bros. Discovery, between the three of them, lost somewhere around $7 billion in stock value in just the first 24 hours alone. Mind you, I have heard reports that that has gone up to $10 billion. I do not have those numbers in front of me. I just know that within that first 24 hours, that is how much has already gone into freefall mode. Again, there is a lot to dive into this about. There are going to be a lot of links in the description for people who have been diving into this way more than we are. Noah and I are not law experts. We are not union experts. We are simply entertainment nerds who want to, because Noah, we talked about a while back, not too far back, uh, the IATSE, which almost went on strike for um, for actors and performers on set. That was eventually alleviated. And a lot of people had speculated that this writer's strike would not reach the same levels as a 2007 writer's strike, which had a massive impact on the entertainment industry as a whole. You hear all of this, you saw all of the Again, future me prepare the blur, the shit hitting the fan. Uh, what do you think about all this? 
Yes. I, immediately, I want to talk about AI. Like right now, I think AI is so, it's starting to be, it's almost like the, the pot is, uh, reaching a boiling point where we're like, whoa, maybe we should turn down the heat on this thing because we don't know what's going to happen if this thing pours over. I'm sure you and I and all of those listening have seen examples of what AI is capable of, whether it's applying a level of vocals to another artist's track from a different artist and like rendering that so believably. Uh, I saw this freaky video where they focused in on the on one of the performers in the movie with the ta- the telephone tower that one is called oh um God tower ah. <laughs> okay you know what I, okay those listening play the guessing game you know two girls they go and climb a radio tower who knows why and they're suddenly like oh no we have to get down because there's a storm coming is the whole movie is meant to just go brandon what is it it's fall it's fall yeah big one point noah whoever's keeping track okay i i love i love how that is the lighthearted bit of this conversation we needed that yes But back to AI, it's just, it's so scary. Right now, a lot of people are posting stories. I've been on TikTok of their interactions that go into the Snapchat AI, which is like the latest like AI companion that a lot of people are interacting with and trying to like freaking um, find loopholes in. Even myself, I've chatted with it. And so the level of intelligence this thing portrays and then now to apply that to now it's already been seen in our, um, you know, in digital art. How quickly are we going to start seeing it in our live action performances or affecting our live action performances in the writer's room? I think it could be such a simple, you know, insertion of this, of this machine to write believably human written sentences. And that's a choppy sentence. Okay. Maybe I should have wrote that thought down before I said it, but podcast, we're just going to talk. So Brandon, do you have a feel, do you have any, I mean, rising concerns over the growth of AI and how it can come into this conversation involving writers? We're in the media space and we're, you know, I don't mean to speak for you, but I think we're both still looking for, you know, where our careers are going to go in the next five or 10 years. We're looking at where media companies are going and what our jobs are at stake for. And yeah, there is certainly that concern of like how much of what we described as humanities, that thing of art you know, human creativity is going to be replicated by technology that right now is very much just a loose mimic, a very good loose mimic, but a loose mimic nonetheless. And how much can that translate into nuance and depth and things that are normally utilized by, you know, proper human beings and their experiences? And it's really disturbing at the very best of it, because if nothing else, it's that idea of you put this concern to the AMPTS this is not something that's been in like the dark web. This is, this has gotten mainstream coverage. Like people know what AI is capable of nowadays and what it's being predicted to. I mean, for God's sakes, the guy, um, the, the main consultant over at Google left Google so he could talk about the dangers of AI. That's where we're at at this point. And they flat out just said like, you know, it's not in black and white, but you can clearly see the idea of like, we're not going to regulate this. Like this is a tool that we can use to make money and potentially screw you guys over. And Again, I know that's not necessarily where they're coming from. That is hugely what it feels like to just say, here is this thing that we have all the warning signs of that we are afraid will take our credibility and you are doing nothing about it. So myself, I work in the subtitle space and the amount of interaction that goes between, I mean, it's heavy interaction that goes in between the translators and production sides of things that have to um, line up where and how this show can effectively be translated and then uh, pushed out to uh, whatever whatever kind of clients or audiences need to receive those. And it's it's just so scary to imagine the amount of 
jobs that could just be people could just be stripped of their positions because of this new um method of creating something like subtitles on the fly and having the type of grammatical like uh, margin of error that is that that matches that of a human and then just accepting that as as the principle um so talking about ai I don't know if we are far from the date where we start to see, you know, more and more headlines about the restrictions of where AI can be placed in the entertainment space, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident that that's around the corner. I'm just, I'm waiting for it to appear for the first time and then we'll, they'll just start rolling in. Secondly, finally, we were talking about streaming platforms and how writers can be appreciated, um, with pay based on their work and their services they provide to a show that blows up a streaming platform's market. To learn that writers were paid based on reruns back when like traditional programming was on many of our televisions. Now that is not the standard. The standard is you have five or six streaming platforms. And yes, there are very popular programs that end up in like making their ways to the, the masses. So how come the success that it brings to the platform does not as well bring success to the writers and and every member of the team behind production of that show. Um, if it hasn't happened already, then of course a strike was on its way. This is, this is not surprising to, to learn of the, that this was the outcome. This outcome is not surprising, but for myself, for member, for those in the audience who learned this in the entertainment space, it's just surprising to learn that it's never been accounted for, or it's never been at the point where it's felt balanced between the writers and what they've received based on how popular a show was. I hate how not surprising it is because, you know, for you and I, like we've been doing the show now for a year and a half and we've explored the entertainment news space for as long as we have. There has been writing on the wall about this. There has been the mass cancellations and the mass layoffs by different media companies. There has been the concerns over AI. There's been the things of like Netflix and even Amazon in certain cases not releasing their numbers. So as to say like, yes, if we say it's a hit, then it is definitely a hit. And it just brings to mind that thing of if the producers want the public to be on their side about this, and I'm sure they do, they need to be forthcoming about this. And I've read there's a fantastic piece of variety by Gene Maddow about the 48 hours before the strike actually happened. And you can see the sides from both. And I'm not saying this is a both sides issue. I'm very vehemently signing with the writers on this, but it is very much a thing of seeing from the producer's angle of like, yeah, we set our case about this. We believe this is where the movie industry space is. And reading it, it feels incredibly tone deaf, especially after the two years of pandemic storytelling that we've had of trying to reroute how entertainment is you know, uh, is redistributed, how those people are given jobs, how those, um, you know, how those in power are attempting to take care of the people who make that content. And it just feels like a three-year time bomb has just gone off and everything we've seen in the past couple of years has really blown up in its face of like, you maybe did, and there were maybe good ideas there, but even in that Gene Maddow's article, it says that both sides are not looking at the table right now, unless the WGA asks first. And they're not because they've made their demands evidently and abundantly clear. How long is this going to last? You know, for it being 15 years since the last strike and that like kind of shattering back then, I, I only imagine this has to go on for a substantial amount of time in order to, in order to see the effects of what these demands, um, are going to bring about from the studios. I mean, the 2007 strike, I was 11 at that time. So I don't remember. Yeah. Like we were not that old and cognizant about it. No. Should quickly mention. Uh, Francesca Ramsey, who has been one of the big voices of the WGA uh, public movement on this, who is one of the writers on Superstore, on the iCarly reboot, uh, someone asked her on Twitter, 
what people can do about this just in the general public. And I'm sure many of you have had the same question as well. As of right now, the WGA is not asking you to cancel subscription services or stop watching shows necessarily. They're primarily worried about picketing and public support and just getting the word out of this is where we are at and this is where we need to get the pendulum to swing towards the stu- uh, towards us from the studios. So if you are wondering that at all, right now that is not an official position. If you want to cancel your accounts, you are more than welcome to for other various reasons, but you do not have to if you are supporting the WGA. If they do ask of you to to cancel your accounts, would you immediately do so? It's funny because the fact that I'm not immediately saying yes tells you where the side is. It's an honest uh, question, right? Because I go, okay, all right. Which which service are we talking about? Paramount Plus, it's gone. Yeah, Peacock, it's gone. HBO, Disney, uh, Disney Plus. Know, uh, Last of Us just ended. It's it's gone. The Mandalorian just it's gone. Netflix. Ooh, I I mean I I do see myself. You know, if they see that as a big action that. Uh, those at home can, can help so support by if, you know, we tank their numbers as strongly as we could for as long as we need to, to show support. I, I think, yeah, I see myself taking action. Um, if that is asked of us, because now it's like, you know, what power can they amass from people because of their reach? And their reach is all of the people who have loved programs that they have worked on. And again, it's also a thing of like, this is 20,000 writers who are responsible for a large chunk, if not the vast majority of shows that we are all talking about, like Craig Mazin, who you mentioned Last of Us, you know, the creator of that is on the front lines of this. The writers of Succession are on the lines of this. The writers of the Yellow Jackets are on the lines for this. So, and all of your late night show favorites. So like, it is going to be a question of the studios of how do they proceed? What content are they, uh, what content are they pursuing? I love the fact that we heard um, just a statement the other day from the Writers Guild of Britain basically being like, yeah, we're not going to do that because we saw what happened in 2007 of them going, well, if American writers don't want to work for us, we'll just go abroad and get talent for that. And they're like, uh, no, we're going to stand in solidarity with these writers and not give a flying crap about this. So that is important to note. For me, going just back to your original point, I probably would because just for my own selfish nature, I mostly watch YouTube anyways. Like streaming services are a smaller part of my diet. Um, but again, everyone has their own thing. You know, it's not being asked of you at this point yet, but if it was, I think it would be the smart move just based on, and again, also the thing that's, I I'm sure that you've seen online of just like, there's so much media online now and so much that we constantly miss year after year. Use that as an excuse to like, go back and look at old favorites that you might've missed that you keep hearing about. Oh, I wanted to watch that. Fine. Download that Buy the physical disc find it. Go explore that. Like that is totally an option. We are not at that point yet, but it is a question that we still have to address just based on the on the pure scale of this. Absolutely, Brandon. And with the previous topics we've covered here on the show, we've never, at least as far as I remember, have covered something that we could provide, you know, real time. Um, well, not not as real as, you know, we record. <laughs> I'm not talking like for, real time, you know. But, like for context, the strike started on Tuesday. We're recording this Wednesday. It will hopefully be out by Thursday. Right. As we um, progress into next week's recording or the next episode's recording, which is usually biweekly, um, we can see how well we can follow this story and, you know, talk about developments of it because it does quite literally like affect the space that we cover. Uh, yes, we are more so involved in the features and in the movie portions, but um, it, it's part of the overall industry conversation. So I think that that's something you and I should engage in. Yeah. Like as far as huge topics go, I can't remember when we tackled something this big aside from like the IATSE thing like we uh, we started this after you know all the pandemic shutdowns so we didn't have to deal with all that in real time so this is kind of a first for us so like huzzah in that regard but it's also a thing of like 
yeah, we need to like keep that momentum as far as just to you guys because we feel you know a bit of a responsibility to do that when it's something again this huge and this long uh, this long term. And we're going to be getting to you know CinemaCon stuff right after this. And no, I know that you and I in our pre-production meeting were looking down all the topics that I had gathered. And I don't know about you, I felt a little bit iffy about choosing a lot of them because I was like, these are all projects that haven't been shot yet and basically haven't been written yet. And I was like, <laughs> I feel a little weird. Like, hey, this is super cool, but also like it's underpaid writers. No, yeah, th- that was the that was the sentiment over here too because I just looked at the all of our news topics that you know we 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 cycle through and decide what we're going to highlight, and it was it was as if you know n- none of these. Are, they carry the same weight as our big topic of the day because th- their announcements or their their um, just details that, that are being shared about, like you say, projects that are incomplete. So where do you go with that? Trailer Roundup! Yes. Let's talk about movies that are already, not even in post-production, they are released, they are on the release schedule, baby. They are coming at you this or the next or the few years up ahead. Uh, we have some new trailers to look at today. I definitely have at least a small comment on each and every one of them, but two of them I'm most excited to dive into discussion with my guy, Mr. King here. Um, go ahead and give us the rundown, Brandon. Tell us about the this week's trailer roundup. Built free on most of them. We'll get to it, uh, because starting off is our good old boy, The Flash. Um, ne- next main trailer, uh, it's coming out in theaters June 16th. Ezra Miller, Michael Keaton, Ben Affleck, they're both coming out because Batman, Sasha Cowley, a Supergirl in this. It's basically the joke of, Barry, you screwed up the timeline again, the movie. Um, so, of course, that's going to be huge scale. That premiered at, actually, the movie premiered at CinemaCon. We might get into some of the reactions on that. Um, but, yes, the first reactions that are out, we can obviously talk about that. The first trailer for Dune Part 2, literally this morning as we're taping this, just dropped. Uh, there was a first look at CinemaCon. There was a teaser that came out a couple days ago. First full trailer for that came out. Um, again, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Rebecca Ferguson, they're all coming back. Alongside Florence Pugh, Austin Butler is going to be in there. Christopher Walken, who is sadly not in the first trailer. I wanted to see Sand Emperor Walken, whatever. Uh, that'll be out in theaters November 3rd. Uh, the first trailer for The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a.k.a. The Hunger Games prequel that some of you have heard about. Um, Rachel Zegler is in that. Viola Davis is in that. Peter Dinklage is in that. Uh, focusing on a young President Snow. I wish I had the name of the actor in front of me. I'm terribly sorry. That'll be in theaters November 17th. Also in theaters November 17th, I'm sure, which will be a limited uh, awards release before going wide the following week. Next Goal Wins, which was in my most anticipated list uh, earlier this year. That is Taika Waititi's next directorial project starring Michael Fassbender, uh, along with a bunch of really cool just comedic actors uh, about the Samoan football team and their rise to glory, so to speak. What's going to happen? Can they, you know, Ted Lasso themselves to victory? That'll be in theaters November 17th. And last but not least, Wish. If you heard a while back, there was the joke of Pixar and Disney doing a movie about the star at the uh, Disney castle and what the origin story about that was. That is this movie. It's a kind of fantasy musical movie. Uh, Ariana DeBose, Chris Pine is going to be in that. That is going to be set for release uh, November 22nd, just in time for Pixar's usual Thanksgiving domination, so to speak. Noah, what of these stood out to you? Looking at that new trailer from The Flash, I'm shocked that they showed as much action as they did compared yeah. to earlier trailers. I I was like, whoa, they're actually showing a lot of their hand here. I wonder if this is the best of what they have to offer, which is I hope not, because when they're when they're exciting audiences and they want to bring them in like this, I can't see every single big set piece that you're going to be blowing up and blasting through, uh, regardless of what hero reveal we've seen so far. 
It is my hope that what they have shown us is because that is the least of what they have to offer. And they're only going to get bigger and badder by the time that movie comes around. We did joke in the past about having our Flash review be one of the fastest reviews and shortest on this podcast because of all of the Ezra Miller news, because of all of the assaults that we have learned about in the headlines. And now that that is seemingly fizzled away, it leads me to, you know, bring about the conversation and, and wonder where is that discussion happening now when it comes to reception of the film? Um, you know, where I think the latest headline I read was, uh, that Miller had, had been seeking, um, help for for any type of condition i i couldn't tell you moving on next goal wins taika watiti i'm so surprised that korg did not show up i did expect <laughs> him to roll through but yeah we see watiti's uh cameo already in the first trailer but most impressive is michael fassbender's american accent i guess we're checking out how he can do in this sort of um you know un uh becoming a new coach for an underdog team and how i can bring them to victory uh interesting i'm excited to see what td's i'm I, excited is the wrong word i am um i have like modest expectations for ytd's direction for this new film uh being in the sports lane i guess we'll see how it feels but if there's one thing that what td has done well in the past it's like really highlight like this underdog story and uh making it easy to engage with i'm thinking of jojo rabbit and so if we can see the same in next goal wins and we don't get the lackluster comedy that was Thor Love and Thunder, I'll be impressed with with what TD's next flick. Pixar's Wish. We have West Side Story's star, Ariana DeBose. Uh, we're we're going to get into another West Side Story star later. The animation looks kind of funky here. I'm not going to lie. This animation looks weird. Like, I'm looking at it and I go, I don't know if I want to see this. And usually I'm kind of a Disney animated. Like, I was there for Encanto. I was... I was late to Raya and the Last Dragon, but I did still check it out. I was there for um, Lightyear. That's not like a Disney Disney movie, though. But that being everything considered, I just consider myself a Disney fan, and I will go to the theaters to watch an animated feature just for the just for the joy that is communicated through with those films. And here with the story, Wish it does seem rather basic, but with the new with the song that they used in the background of the trailer. I can see myself being a fan of the soundtrack. So we'll have to wait and see for more details and more snippets of what that uh, story has to offer. But what I'm most excited and ready to talk about now is our two bigger features, our two biggest features. There's Dune Part 2, uh, releasing in the later half of this year. We have Paul Atreides. We have a tease of him riding the Alaskan bullworm of Arrakis. Arrakis. It was big, scary, <laughs> and pink, maybe? You can't tell in the trailer? Not the only worm that we'll be talking about today. I love all these, like, hey, we're going to talk. Hey, hey, Brandon and I are always tying everything together. But yes, I Zendaya, Florence Pugh, what the hell is going to go on here? Action, blue, piercing eyes, sandy deserts. Where are we? I'm so ready to be back in that audio landscape phenomenon that is Dune. I wish I could go back and experience that first film all over again. Just with the beginning in IMAX, you know, we hear the earth speak or whatever is speaking through that, that, um, that title sequence or the opening scene. I was hooked. And I just went on an adventure after that. So I really expect the same experience for Dune Part 2, and I'm confident it will not let me down. It was in both yours and my top 10 of that year. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes 
I've read the Hunger Games trilogy, the Hunger Games trilogy, but I have yet to pick up the this the uh, book version of this film. So I don't think I'm going to get to it before the movie comes out. I'm interested in what this origin of President Snow has to offer for the character. I'm excited to see castings of Peter Dinklage, Viola Davis, and I, I've already mentioned Rachel Zegler. It's going to be a new story in the world of Pan Am. New, but, you know, old for those who have already existed in that franchise. So let's see what kind of crumbs are laid for what the future of the games become. Viola Davis looks like she will be diabolical in this film. And I mostly want to see, you know, what hurt Snow so bad that he became the monster that Katniss and the majority of um, the districts believed him to be. Yeah, I think way back in our first or second episode, we talked about the Ballad of Songbird and Snakes becoming a thing. And our former co-host, Samantha Gorbaya, I begged her to tell me just like, is this just young, sexy snow? And she was like, it's not, not young, sexy snow. <laughs> By the way, that's uh, Tom Blythe is who's playing snow. If you know for the uh, Billy the Kid Netflix series and epics, uh, he's been in a couple other things. Uh, By the way, Flickerman, who's doing the like old school broadcast, I don't know why. I watched the first trailer and my mind went, oh my God, Stanley Tucci hasn't aged a day. It's not. It's Jason Schwartzman. It's as though they know the look so well for what that host has to embody. And it's it's so wild because I, I had the same feeling as you. I had just the same reaction as you. So that looks, it looks frankly really compelling. Like Francis Lawrence is coming back to direct. Obviously I'll watch anything Rachel Zegler does, you know, anything Bill Davis does. The cast is super cool. The idea of like a, you know, a Hunger Games way back when and using it to address how someone as vile as Snow becomes that way. I agree with you. That's kind of an interesting premise. And the trailer gives a lot of that. Like there's some great dialogue between Dinklage and um uh, and young Snow. Um, Dinklage goes, do you know what that is? That's Snow falling. Yes, that's it. So um, good. It's on the nose, but like the originals were too. Um, Dune part two looks so good. Oh my God. It looks so good. This is such a great first trailer. I love the interactions between uh, Paul and Shawnee, a.k.a. Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya. They seem like they're going to have that kind of palpable back and forth that was hinted at in the first movie, but they're really going to draw into it here. Uh, we see a little bit of a bald Austin Butler. I've already started seeing uh, Best Supporting Actor campaigns for him, and I'm not sure I'd be totally against it. Um, you're right. The worm scene is fantastic. The scene of, you know, Paul leading the masses, I'm sure, is going to be hugely effective. And you're right, just on a technical level, just watching this first trailer just brought me to the mind of like, oh, right, this is going to blow my little freaking mind, just like it, the first one did. I'm I'm dying to see it in IMAX. I can't wait for it. Um, the Flash. It looks cool. It looks cool. I'm not going to lie. Uh, Sasha Cali has my whole heart already as Supergirl. I'm sure she's going to be fantastic. Um, but yes, the Ezra Miller stuff is concerning. To your point, Right now, apparently, they are in mental health care right now for a variety of issues, according to their publicist. Um, I'm not sure what that's going to mean for the press tour. Part of me wants the chaos to ensue. Part of me just really wants them to get help. And there are people who have, they have hurt to get help because this is a really screwed up situation. And it makes me just really concerned that, like, if I didn't have this show, would I be at all interested in this movie and all of the Batman stuff? I think it's a lot of fan service that I really love. But we'll talk about it maybe when the movie comes out. If I did not have the show, would I be as interested in this movie? Yeah, just again, like, again, it looks cool. Like you say, the action sequence, and apparently the cut they showed at CinemaCon was 
almost finished. There was some visual effects stuff they had tidy up, which is what we saw in the trailer as well. So it's not completely done. If you saw the, you know, the outfit and the kind of face mask and everything, and we're like, that doesn't look great. It's not completely done. So we still have about a month of post-production. Um, Wish, real quick, is interesting just because it's the Frozen 2 team. So it's Chris Buck directing and Jennifer Lee writing. That is why it has my faith. You're right, the kind of mix of 2D and 3D, which I should absolutely be salivating over. I want, I watched and went, it's neat. I'm sure it'll look better on the big screen, um, but just as far as the first teaser, it is what it is. And then what I'm missing, uh, Next Goal Wins, which was on my most anticipated list. And this is a fine trailer. I really wanted more from it. I thought I would laugh more about it. I'm really happy to see Taika Waititi continuing to do the wackiest, stupidest cameos he can think of as like the weird priest in this. That'll be fun. Um, I'm excited to see what Michael Fassbender can do in more of a lighthearted role. We haven't seen him do that in maybe ever. So I'm still excited for this. You know, the story is still really inspiring, but like the first trailer, I kind of had the reaction of, that's eh, neat. Moving on to our quick hits portion. This is the portion of the show where we each take a topic that maybe we didn't want to do a full, you know, seven to however many long minute discussion we wanted to do for it. But we wanted to get across to you guys anyways in a hopefully minute to minute and a half bite because I use the stupid timer sound effect and we always go over, but hopefully it'll work out today. Um, a spoiler, mine won't. Noah, on to yours. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm going to start my quick hit here in three, a two, and a one. So I'm providing to you today yet another casting announcement. It seems like lately I've been doing that more and more. So we'll see if I can shake it up for the next episode. But today it is no different. We are talking about the barbarian actress and black mirror actress from Hang the DJ episode who I uh, applaud all the time, Georgina Campbell. Where is she joining? She is joining M. Night Shyamalan's daughter's feature film. Her name is Aishana Night Shyamalan. And the film that she is adapting is called The Watchers. The latest casting announcement on top of Georgina Campbell is none other than Dakota Fanning. So I am so ready to see Dakota Fanning coming back at my screen. The last time I think I've seen her was just a voice of hers. I'm sure she was there physically as well in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> so now to wrap up what the synopsis is of this film. So let's talk about The Watchers. The Watchers is based on an A.M. Shine novel. And what it follows is a story about an artist who Fanning is going to portray. The artist gets stranded in an expansive, untouched forest in Western Ireland. And when they find shelter, they unknowingly have now trapped themselves along with three strangers who are stalked by mysterious creatures every night. Now, who is playing one of those strangers, none other than Georgina Campbell. I am so ready for this. Uh, it comes at night, sort of cabin in the woods. What's going to go down with the nature around you, especially when you're locked in a new environment with strangers. It comes from Shyamalan, you know, the king of like the mystery and the twists at the end. I am ready to see what this breakout star will bring to a premier director's first project. I'll more than likely be providing a review on this podcast when it comes out. And that's two times the time. Thank you. Oh, let me credit the source. I've got most of this information from a the from a Hollywood Reporter article by Boris Kitt and time, time, time. Yeah, I like Dakota Fanning a lot. I also had to look up when the last time I saw her was because I didn't watch uh, The Alienist on FX, but I know a lot of people did. Um, I think I last saw her in Ocean's 8. She had like a little bit part in that. But uh, yeah, she hasn't been there in a while. And it's, it's good to see her back. Right. I almost quoted her last appearance as uh, the member of the Volturi, but I was like, no, there was something else. And I remembered Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had used her then. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, you know, I, I, aside from um, Dakota Fanning, I'm talking about like other like uh, memorable stars um, from the early 2000s. And I think Amanda Seyfried was just at the Met Gala. And I thought, yes. oh, my gosh, like you're also very, um, you know, it's, it's surprising to see you back in the public spectacle. I mean, she was just nominated for an Oscar a couple of years ago for Make. 
And I missed that one. But did you? Yes. And she was terrific in it. On to my quick hit and future me get rid of that damn timer. Uh, cause this one's kind of important in three, two. So some rather sad news for my quick hit. And I will try and run through this as quickly and efficiently as I can. Hugely significant passing among the not just film world, but entertainment world at large. Harry Belafonte, the legendary actor, activist, and musician, passed away at the age of 96 uh, just this past week or two ago on April 25th. Uh, Belafonte was basically a renowned Renaissance man for generations, and I do mean generations plural of fans, uh, born in 1927 in Harlem. He was, again, nearly 100 years old to Jamaican parents. Uh, he spent time in his family's home learning to sing and perform. He fought in World War II, afterwards to Broadway. One of his albums, Calypso, in 1956, became one of the first, if not the first, I believe, album to sell a million copies in the U.S. So hugely successful at a fairly young age. Um, among his many honors, he is an EGOT winner. He won a Tony for 1954's John Murray, uh, John Murray Anderson's Almanac, an Emmy for Revlon Review, an evening with uh, Harry Belafonte, a Grammy in 1961 for the compilation album Swing That Hammer, and the Gene Herschel Award of the 2015 Oscars. He was also inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just this past year as an early influencer, so that should tell you just a little bit of the amazing stuff that he has delivered. Within the film world, purely, uh, Belafonte became a bona fide superstar in his time, starring alongside Jason, uh, James Mason in Island of the Sun, alongside Inger Stevens in The World of Flesh and the Devil, where they apparently had such good chemistry, the movie had to be censored because of it. That's a whole other story. Uh, in Sidney Poitier's directorial debut, Buck and the Preacher, and his final role in 2018's uh, Spike Lee movie, Black Klansman. More than that, Belafonte was deeply into political activism. He was a close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He spoke at his funeral. He was a vocal critic of apartheid uh, and the Bush administration, among other things. He was also a key figure in We Are the World, which is that huge benefit single from the 80s that brought together pretty much everyone to raise money for Ethiopian famine victims. If you want more into either of those, uh, the 2011 documentary Sing a Song goes into his uh, civil rights movement stuff, as is Peacock's The Sit-In, which I admit I haven't watched, but is about something that I didn't know about. He hosted The Tonight Show for about a week in 1968 when Johnny Carson was sick. I will link some stuff in the description below on his work. We, of course, send our condolences to his uh, wife, Pamela, his family, his friends, and all of the people who he has affected in nearly 100 years of entertainment and just a titan of it, like just a titan of the industry that is uh, that has gone by so fast. And again, he will be truly missed. That'll wrap today's quick hit portion of the show. Let's move on now to our new movie reviews. We have two solo reviews to knock out before Brandon and I join in discussion on two um, of our later titles. But first, we are getting into Brandon's solo title, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Now, I know Rachel McAdams is a part of this picture, but beyond that, Brandon is going to provide you so much context and the review. I can't wait to hear more, and so can you. Hey, I made that rhyme. Brandon, over to you. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, is the latest movie from Kelly Freeman Craig, actually. Uh, Noah, did you watch Edge of, Se uh, Edge of 17 with Haley Steinfeld? Yes, yes, I did, and I found it endearing. Yes, I freaking adore that movie. I think it's terrific and raw and just totally poignant to what it's trying to do, and I've been dying to see what Kelly Freeman Craig would do as a director at since then, and it's been seven years, I want to say, which makes me feel very, very old. Um, this is her first feature since then. It is also written by her. It's based on the classic, uh, 1970 novel by Judy Bloom. We pick up with Margaret Simon, played here by Abby Ryder Fortson, who you might know from the Ant-Man movies, playing the young Cassie before Catherine Lang and, uh, Emin Furman took over the role. She is a young girl living in New York. Her mother, aka Rachel McAdams, as you mentioned, uh, Barbara is a Christian woman who has had a rather trepidatious past. Uh, her father is Benny Safdie. Uh, of course, of the Safdie brothers, who you might have seen in Obi-Wan Kenobi and a couple other things. Uh, he directed Uncut Gems. Uh, he is a Jewish man. Basically, the movie is such. Uh, you have 
You have uh, Margaret, her parents, and uh, Kathy Bates, her grandmother, Sylvia, all living together in uh, New York until Herb gets a promotion and they have to uproot the entire family to New Jersey. This is, of course, in the mid-70s. Margaret really does not like the idea. She absolutely loves her grandmother. She doesn't want to move anywhere. And thus leads to a lot of complications. And she meets this young girl named Nancy, here played by Elle Graham. She forms a bond with a teacher played by Echo Kellum, of all people, from Arrow, who I was so happy to see in this. I was like... Oh, this is terrific from Arrow. This is so cool to see him. A lot of stuff goes down. And the main crux of the movie is Margaret and Nancy and their whole secret club that they establish are they're young girls. They're just on the edge of teenagers. They're, you know, growing up in the 70s. They're seeing like the growth of Playboy and the growth of like the open sexuality feminist movement and trying to determine what it means to be a woman. There's a couple of great scenes where they're trying, you know, they're trying bras for the first time. But it's also based in the title. You know, as I mentioned Uh, Margaret is the daughter of a Christian woman and a Jewish man, and there is a lot of religious stuff that comes into this. Uh, It's not so much a religious movie, but it is much more a movie where that conflict becomes a thing, Um, especially when Echo Kellum as her teacher, uh, they have a whole year-long assignment project, and he says, well, why don't you talk about religion? This is something that you are uniquely gifted to talk about. That's being a request to go, you know, to a Jewish temple. When she goes to visit her grandmother, um, there's questions of her faith of her mom, who let's just say, left the church for various reasons. Um, And a lot of just really heavy existential stuff in the midst of what is a really great coming-of-age movie. Uh, And I'm bearing the lead here. And I'm bearing the lead here. I absolutely adore this movie. And one of the things that I adore about this movie is just how much of a sense of tone and pacing and atmosphere that Kelly Freeman Craig has in here. If any of you saw, again, Edge of 17, and you loved how you know, for lack of a better word, real and raw that movie was when it came to exploring ideas of coming of age and wondering identity. This takes that to another level. It has all of those things of, you know, you see a boy and you're intimidated by that. You don't really know what to do at that age. Or, you know, you're exploring, you know, what your body means and you feel uncomfortable about sex ed and like, oh, this girl is completely perfect, but her parents are really not. And I'm really concerned about what her, you know, uh, lifestyle is and that. If you had any of those feelings, This goes a step further because it's not just the idea of coming of age. It's also the idea of reconciling with what you believe in. This is a movie about, you know, loyalty and family and, you know, all these things. But unlike, you know, Fast and the Furious, there's the idea of Margaret growing up in a household where both of her parents decided very early on not to lean her towards one religion or the other, which leads to, again, some really poignant scenes that I don't want to spoil. There's there's a moment where Margaret is... She finds out about her grandparents on her mom's side, and she she point blank asks Rachel McAdams' character, like, what happened between you two? And Rachel McAdams is terrific in this movie, but that scene in particular, if there is any sort of Best Supporting Actress buzz, I think you have to put that as her Oscar clip. It just, it's poignant and deep, and you can tell that she is just on the cusp of breaking that scene. Um, equally as good is Kathy Bates as her grandmother, who, again, you know, I, I joke as like the overbearing Jewish grandmother, but like in the best kind of way, there's the semblance of like, she doesn't want uh, Margaret to leave, not just because she adores her granddaughter, but just the idea of like, this is her family all moving away from her at this really pivotal time in her life. There's a really dark scene where it's not really played to be dark, but it's where they cut away to her back in her apartment and she's going through this, this checklist and it's literally dust do the crossword puzzle and that's it. And it gives you all the insight you need into this character who is growing ever lonelier and is trying to figure out how to deal with that. And every phone call that she has with Margaret or the parents uh, since then, it completely dives into that. So there's all of that. 
but it's also just genuinely hilarious. Like I laughed so much at this movie. The jokes are so funny and so real. There is, you know, the stuff about the period that you've probably heard about through either the good or the bad reputation about this movie. Why there is bad reputation about it, I will never understand. I saw this in a packed crowd of, you know, basically everyone from 8 to 80, and they were all having a goddamn blast with it. And it's charming, but it's also really deep and poignant in a way that I wish I had read the book when I was a kid, because I wish I had more of a context for a lot of this. But just experiencing it for the first time, I truly love what this was pointing down. Again, the cast are all superbly talented. Hans Zimmer does the music for this, and it's not on Spotify, and it damn well should be, because it's a really good Hans Zimmer score, surprisingly. Um, And yeah, it's just one of those movies that nails its tone and idea so well. It completely grips you for the ride. It, you know, I laughed, I cried, like that old trope about it, but I really did do that with this movie, and I really just, I really just gravitated to what it was putting on, and I was so respect what it's doing. I love the story that you've described here, that you're coming onto yourself and really realizing a new a new sense of your identity one that is yes shaped by what your parents had placed over you while you were uh, an adolescent but now as you're growing into your own you're curious as to how much of that is not worth holding on to but how much of that can withstand the pressures of yourself coming through and i I really admire that kind of story. I know for sure this is a movie I have to get to uh, just on my own personal catch-up list. Uh, and for any of those listening, I mean, this just sounds already like it is outstanding. Uh, I love your joke of Fast and the Furious and this being about family and togetherness. Um, but the one question that I had kind of circling near the end was, yes, this is based off of a Judy Bloom uh, book. So I was curious in your experience, did this feel as though it captured like that YA kind of like fantastical narrative? Or did you feel like this? Did you feel that this narrative was very grounded in like the real world and not in this playfulness that um, I can only imagine comes from? Um, well, I'm mistaking Judy Bloom with another author. So my apologies. I don't know her work. But how uh, did you feel? Are you thinking like Beverly Cleary, like the Roman, the Ronan Biza stuff? Yes, I'm thinking about that. Yeah. I'm thinking of just like the the childlike kind of um, perception that is placed on some of those books. I honestly was thinking of um, Junie B. Jones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I, I heard of Judy Bloom and, I, and my brain went to Junie B. Jones. But uh, yeah, what can you share about that type of experience? It's not a strong negative, but it's like one of the negatives that I do kind of nitpick about, which is that on occasion, they will have Margaret do the voiceover of just the thing of, you know, talking to God and that kind of thing. And that part does feel a little bit made for TV, like just that thing of, we could see her in her room trying to like figure out, oh, should I be like praying with my hands clasped or like, is there another way that I can examine this kind of thing? But we get a lot of voiceover stuff. It's not a ton, but when it does happen, it's the moment where it does take me a little out of the environment, which is to go to say to their point, it feels so lived in. Um, I don't have the production designer in front of me, but like their house is so simply set up. And so, but th- th- you get to see it grow and it, it kind of is a representation of both Margaret as well as her family of just coming into this new place, you know, growing in their own character arcs and that idea of, you know, here's like this random chair and like, here's this couch that's never going to pop up and then it does, but it's also at a key point in the movie. And it's that thing of the house in itself is lived in enough, but the whole world around it, like the school and, you know, the various religious institutions she goes to, it all feels like, I won't say gritty because gritty isn't the right word, but it does feel completely lived in of like, this feels like 1971, 1972, if I were to ask my parents about it. Knowing that this comes from the director of another movie that you really admire, Kelly Furman Craig, uh, this is just, you know, where does this sit on um, on how you view her work as a whole? 
Uh, and I don't mean, and I'm not asking you for like a positioning here. Okay. I'm just yeah. asking you like, let's pretend there's a cloud above us. That is the work from Craig. How now does this either like, how does this amplify that? And you know, what does it add? What kind of value does it add to her storytelling? I want to say it was Zoe Rose Bryan on Twitter. Forgive me if somehow you're listening to this and it wasn't, but I think she had pointed out the thing of like, if we're going to give Greta Gerwig the credit for something like, you know, Lady Bird, Little Women, and then up to Barbie and that kind of thing of taking traditionally female stories and giving them heft and universality and just pure pathos to them. I think we have to put Kelly Freeman Craig in that same wheelbarrow because she is just so good between these two films of capturing Yes, young people and that sense of confusion, that sense of isolation, but also pure joy and excitement when that happens. And like the things that you think as a kid that like, yeah, this is going to mean so much. And I had so much fun with this. And then you look back, you know, years later and you think, uh, no, that was entirely cringeworthy, but it was entirely important to me. The scale of being young and the scale of weighing things, as you mentioned earlier, the idea of like institutions and familial knowledge and that kind of thing against you and what becomes important to cling on to and what doesn't. Between this and Edge of 17, I really, truly am just an incredible admirer of, of Craig's work and what she's able to pull out of characters that could be so melodramatic or so one note. Like, again, this is a movie where its central plot point is about whether or not a young girl gets her period. And it's beautiful, but it's not just beautiful in the sense of like the maturity that she goes through in that. And it feels so just, again, real and lived in and joyous and just all the right things. Do you have a rating for this film? I know you do. Please give it to us. Nine and a half out of ten. This is nine and a half. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, this please. Is, I think this is your first nine and a half. Like, is this your? Do you think this is your highest rated film this year? I think this is my favorite movie of the year. I'm sorry, Creed Three. You're terrific, but like this, this is wow. something else. I um, am speechless. Go on. And again, I've already made my spiel, like, between Abby Ryder Forston, who liked my tweet about this, by the way. Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for that. I'm sorry I misspelled your name. You're fantastic in this. But, like, Kathy Bates, uh, Rachel McAdams, Benny Safdie, who I didn't mention, who is also just... I saw someone be like, he is born of the 70s, and he basically is. Um, But, like, the cast are terrific. The score is great. The direction is top-notch. The writing is terrific. And it's just a movie that constantly surprises you about what it's trying to do. I'll end off by just saying this. We're going to talk about Bo is Afraid later, and I've seen a lot of discussion about that movie for a lot of different reasons, but one of the things about it is just the idea of we need movies like this. We need movies where, you know, directors can come in with, you know, high budgets from studios and do whatever the heck they want to and express their art around it and just, you know, make it three-hour smorgasbords of whatever. And I agree with that. Like, we got Babylon, we've got, you know, we're getting all of Scorsese stuff with Apple TV, of course. We need movies like this that are about really poignant topical things unfortunately, you can look at the world today, but that are about really topical things that are funny and engaging and universal and never try and alienate you from the characters. They are always bringing you in right with them that are so well acted and directed. Again, like you may want to call this movie schmaltzy and girly and whatever you know adjectives you want to use for this, but like I just call it universal and good and just pleasant. And we need movies like this, gosh darn it. And like that, that's what I want to end with. It's just go see this movie. It's well worth supporting. And now moving on to the complete opposite of tone, um, Evil Dead Rises. Lee Cronin takes over the Evil Dead franchise from uh, Sam Raimi, who I believe produces this, uh, as well as Fetty Alvarez from the 2013 movie. I believe this has no connections to that. Noah Guzman is going to enlighten us on what the heck this all is. Uh, I have heard a lot of buzz around this. Please tell the viewers uh, or the listeners, I should say, what is this all about? 
Evil Dead Rise. Here we are. This movie was released late April, and here we are finally in the first week of May that I'm coming around to talk about it. And yes, it is the uh, succeeding franchise film for the Evil Dead verse you know none of the films um that have been made in the last two decades are really connected um or so you think uh and that's not like to allude to anything that's literally my perception as well but evil dead rise i've been waiting for it you maybe have too if you're a fan of the horror franchise and we're just going to get into it here we are talking about how uh sisters beth and ellie played by lily sullivan and Alyssa sutherland are coming together for a night of refuge. You know, I think this is both to to speak to um, the refuge from the storm that is outside, the uh, earthquakes that end up coming through, as well as like some emotional refuge. We learn that there's a slight rift between the sisters as one of them, Ellie, uh, who is the mother, she's mother in this film, she is the one who has recently um, gone through a separation. She has three children. Their names are Danny, Bridget, and my personal favorite. Her name is Cassie. Um, all I want to say is that these, you know, introducing yourselves to a cast of a tight-knit family for an Evil Dead film just raises the hairs on your body because previously we've looked at the tropes of, you know, the the college age or 20-somethings all going to a remote location in the middle of the woods. Well, here we're in an apartment. We're in a, um, it's a high-rise that is slowly and slowly being demolished. Like we see, we learn through the story that um, Ellie's family has to move out because of the developments that are underway to actually get rid of the building. Um, so it's already a very spooky venue. But to know that it's a family, I immediately asked the question of like, ooh, like, you know, I wonder which characters are going to go and in what order. Because if you've seen these movies, you know they are bloody. You know they are gruesome to their cast. So I can only imagine, um, you know, the ideas that you have going into this for what's going to go down. But I'm sure you've seen the trailer. I'm sure we all know that Ellie played this time by Sutherland, who brilliantly transforms herself between, you know, living Ellie and dead-eyed Ellie. And it is the chef's kiss of the type of demons that can be portrayed in these films. I think that Sutherland is a master of what she puts out in this film. Her potential up against Beth's as the, you know, the the lead, the hero of sorts in this film who has to defend her family is really a battle that you see from beginning to end. I, I love the love that is portrayed between these two sisters and their relationship that is shown off the bat. But as we journey to the end, it only gets, it only like <laughs> puts fuel all over this chaos and then lights it ablaze for yourself to enjoy uh, what ensues. I can't get into the nitty gritty, unfortunately, and it gets super gritty. Um, but I'm sure you're aware of what goes down in, in these films. Somebody finds a book of the dead and they, upon reading it, they pretty much invite an evil to come into their world and transform the loved ones around them, their friends, their family into they, their souls be consumed. And there are certain methods that we have seen in the past, whether it be um, Fede Alvarez's evil dead or Sam Raimi's evil dead uh, way back when there are methods to rid these evils and to save the souls 
of the people. And I feel like that was the intention of the, uh, the resolution of the 2013 film. But in this one, I think we have more of an emphasis on family because we learn um, very early on that Beth, she's learning that she's pregnant. She's a new, she's new to this information. And so throughout the film, it's teased with her about how, how could she ever be a good mother? Because um, she is more of an edgy personality. She isn't really stable on her feet. She comes to Ellie seeking help because she, uh, it alludes to the fact that she doesn't know who the father is. And so it's just kind of one of those situations where she's just trying to do what's best for herself. And she doesn't know if being mother to this child is the best thing for her, but that is um, a thread that is pulled on throughout this film and on whether um, or not she can kind of step up to the plate and be that for herself. Um, and the movie doesn't really leave you with a firm answer on that, which I, which I appreciate from it. But now going into more characters, uh, Ellie, I want to speak on her because even while she is shown by herself, I really admire the type of, uh, parenting style that they, ha- that they exuded through her. Like we didn't have just another, you know, um, helicopter parent so overbearing on their kids. Like, no, these kids are, are Gen Z. Um, they're, they're, uh, doing their laundry so that they can go to an activism, uh, so they can do their activist work down the street the next day, or they're in the room blasting rock music and like aspiring to be a DJ. And it's all because of the rock music that their mom put them onto. And I really loved seeing that type of mom, uh, shown on screen. I just thought that she was such an infatuating character to spend time with even before all of the evil started to consume her her um now we can get into the kills okay uh this movie does recycle some some well-known uh shticks in the horror drama genre whether it be you know chewing on and swallowing glass whether it be impalings or stabbings or you know lighting somebody on fire i think that it provides valuable framing for these types of tools for these types of um dismemberments should i say to the point where when i saw them on screen i was still like my mouth open my i'm i'm in shock i'm thinking holy shit this is this is a scary movie not because it's it's got all the um the scare factor behind this film i think is because the ways that the dead are able to tease at your heartstrings, I think is what's really uncanny for these films. Um, they're not a zombie who just approaches you with the face of your loved one. This is a being that now has the memories of that, of they, those they have consumed. And so the knowledge they hold over your head on whether it was, you know, your sister and what they can pull out of themselves. Oh, it's terrible. It, it's so good and it's so bad. It's also hilariously thematic because the tagline for this movie is mommy loves you to death. And that is present in the script that is present in the, I mean, even in the subplot with Beth and whether or not she is ready to become a parent. Um, it is present in the performances from Ellie when she engages with her daughter, Cassie and Cassie played by Nell Fisher here. She's the youngest of the three children. A big thing for her character is seeking guidance from the adults around her or just from the older people around her, um, where her siblings are not really able to provide her that kind of support. Beth is really a strong pillar of support for her as we move through the movie and hearing their conversations just really, um, really give you hope for what can happen to these characters. And I'm not going to spoil, you know, how everything plays out, but I will say there's so much blood. There is um, so much camp in this film that I think is reminiscent 
to the to where the franchise took itself off to after that initial movie and, and the it, it does i think really go uh punch for punch blow for blow with the 2013 remake i appreciated this film so much uh from writer director lee cronin who previously has worked on films, uh, one of which is The Hole in the Ground. That's the recent release in 2019. I haven't seen Cronin's name pop up in a lot of um, spaces for the horror, but I think that that's a good thing. I think that Cronin is a new voice in horror that hopefully we see more and more of because this, for me, was a complete, you know, um, it was a home run. I really admired this new this new title in the Evil Dead franchise. And I think that I will go back to this. I've already gone back twice, so I can see myself going back a third time just to appreciate it once more. It is, this is not the movie, this is not the next hereditary for you. You know, you're not going to go in there and lose your mind over all of the terror and horror. Uh, this isn't the next Ouija or Dr. Sleep, you know, Flanagan flick that is so, um, cinematically terrifying that it brings you to that point. Instead, this is evil dead to the core with the camp, with the, the theme. Um, and writing is superb. Mwah. I love all of the setups that they place in the beginning of the film and the way they pay off is completely, um, it feels earned. And I love when a movie can provide that to its audience. This movie has one of the best openings that I've seen this year for a title sequence. And uh it's already been like shared over Twitter. Like you can just look it up and you'll see the type of uh just spectacle that it provides to you in the first three minutes. And so that's just to speak to a larger movie that is, like I say, uh completely intelligent and on theme for what it has to be. So flowers and flowers to this film. I'm giving this film a nine out of 10 and it's sure enough going to be on my top 10 for the year. So I, so I suspect. I want to quickly ask you, Without giving away spoilers, because again, we had the really horror-tinged 2013 movie, and now we have this one, which is a bit more campy, plus the whole Ash vs. Evil Dead series. Would you want them to stay consistent with the next one, either following the same characters or same tone, or would you want them to go more flat-out horror like Fede did? In Evil Dead, I love what Fede did. I am so ready for that Alien film. And I think the Alien franchise has been done to death. I'm still here for it, because it's his Color me optimistic. You know, I'm hopeful and I have a hope for my horror space. And he is a voice in horror who I'm ready to see return with that alien film and have us all talking and speaking his name again with the, with the 2013 evil dead, the book isn't destroyed at the end. And it kind of just, it still lives on. And in this film, we learned that the book was um hidden away. This isn't a spoiler, but it was hidden away in some underground bank where this apartment was built on top of, and then it was shut off and an earthquake actually reveals an opening for the, for, for the characters to go in and explore. It placed the question in my head, is this in the same evil dead world? Or are we now just taking these situations and these characters and saying, okay, now that is, that is squared off. What's a new environment and new cast that we can explore the evil dead um circumstance with which i wouldn't mind at all i actually i would love to see that as opposed to the the dragging on that is like franchise filmmaking nowadays brandon you and i ran into each other in person hey plot device meetup hey somehow <laughs> some way it, it not happened only had, it not only had to be a theater that i have never gone to before that was my first time at the amc notera but it was also me just being like, I'm a little dehydrated. I'm going to finally, you know, get up and get some water, which I never do. I, I rarely leave. And then there you were. 
I'm heading straight down to my theater, theater 13, wherever it was. I'm watching Bo is Afraid with a friend. I'm preparing myself for what is the three-hour experience of Bo is Afraid. And I see somebody walking towards me, and I think, whoa, are we recording right now? Is that Brandon <laughs> King walking towards me? And I mean, I'm like, I immediately go, Mr. King. It was so nice running into you, Brandon. That was genuinely hilarious. And maybe the funniest part of the experience of Bo is Afraid. And I tell, um, I asked Brandon before going in, I go, you know, okay, Brandon, what am I going in for? Because I'm prepared for chaos, but I need to know, is this the type of film that's going to be like, hello, I am your shepherd, you know, please follow me into the night and I will guide you. Or is this, oh no, you know, this is Will Ferrell's at the Lego table. He's having his fun. That's Bo is Afraid, that level of chaos. And you were like, uh. <laughs> yeah, Bo is Afraid. This is the newest movie from Ari Aster. Uh, side note, my first Ari Aster movie, because again, I'm a big wimp. I never saw Hereditary. I never saw Midsommar. This is the first movie that I thought, oh, I could finally see this. And the results. Um, but yes, Ari Aster uh, wrote and directed this. Uh, he produced it alongside his longtime partner, uh, Nars Knudsen. Joaquin Phoenix is Bo, and he be very afraid. He suffers from a lot of anxiety issues. Um, a lot of familial drama that we will maybe get into, maybe allude to. Again, I'm not, we're going to have to dive into a little bit of spoilers about this. I'm sorry, you guys. Like, if you haven't seen this, just fast forward to the ratings. I promise we'll be spoiler free in that. But Bo is living in a unassuming uh, cityscape. We're not really sure what he does for a living, but he, you know, he's like kind of living his life. He's supposed to fly home to meet his mom, uh, played by Patty Lapone, And then things just get, really miserable from there um there's a lot of stuff with some homeless people outside with his credit card and then he meets a couple played by nathan lane and amy ryan uh he runs into a theater troupe out in the woods he uh has flashbacks with a young girl who he met in his youth the younger version of him uh, as pointed out by the internet uh armen Nahapetian, I believe is how you say his name who looks exactly like walking phoenix if he was deep faked um and um Oh, crying aloud. Uh, and Julia, Ant- Julia Antonelli is the uh, younger version of the character Elaine, who he has this kind of fling with on the cruise ship that is also involving his mother. It's a movie. Noah, 95% sure, because you've had experience with Ari Aster, that you were going into this with certain expectations. And the buzz coming out of this was very much a smorgasbord of, hell yes! And also, what in the actual hell? and everything in between. And to some people, that makes for the movie-going experience of the year. I cannot disagree with that statement, but I'm wondering what you were thinking going into this, knowing Ari Aster's work prior and knowing this is going to be more of a big fish slash Alice in Wonderland kind of take. You start in your chair and you strap in and you tell yourself, okay, three hours of this film with um, consistency, I'm ready. Oh, consistency's thrown out got it okay yeah um let's go ahead and have reasoning in the film okay no reasoning got it okay yeah let's have um we're losing reason here um can we have some more confusion yes let's add in confusion yes let's have that um can we have twist at the okay add twist at the end add twist at the end and do we want to make it um make sense for the story at large no we're not going to have it make sense for the story at large um these are my personal takes these are my personal thoughts on Bo is afraid um i went with a friend Yes, it was a 10 p.m. showing and this movie's three hours long. Yes, he fell asleep, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to dock the, the, um, the time because of that. I'm not going to dock the lateness of that showing. Okay. I think that is completely because of you, Ari Aster. Ari Aster. 
acclaimed director for Hereditary, Midsommar. I know I didn't give Midsommar its flowers, but I I was aware of its potential and its um its own attention that it garnered and appreciation. I even will throw, you know, I'll throw some petals that way. You know, we mentioned earlier about how there should be films that are provide, there should be opportunities that are provided to these directors to just, just kind of go balls to the wall with their vision. Unfortunately, it didn't work for me here. Unfortunately, this was a movie where I think I signed up for, sure, I was ready for like another horror film from Aster, but I just was ultimately ready for a film that I think a story that I could receive and like could pick up and, you know, maybe somebody's going to clock me and say, you're just not an intelligent viewer because this is through Bo's eyes. And Bo is, um, you know, has a different way of seeing the world because of his afflictions and these things and that. And while sure, that could be true for you and your experience of this film, for myself, every time we turned a corner, I raised an eyebrow and I thought, okay, but I, I, I know that this is going to matter because I'm trusting Aster. But it kind of just feels like randomness. Like this feels like there was some hex magic going on and we are in Westview and Wanda Maximoff, AKA the Scarlet Witch is hovering somewhere, turning this world into nothing but chaos and confusion. I don't know. I want to give a shout out really quickly to Lucian Johnson, uh, who is the editor, uh, Johnston, I should say, who is the editor for this movie. And I think this is one of those movies where if you ever gave a crap about editing, this is it. Like, this is a movie where you mentioned kind of the, you know, bearing the lead thing of like, this is a movie through Bo's eyes and his experiences. And I think Johnston does a really good job working with Aster in constantly framing the movie in these surreal ways, in cutting frames in between, in not lingering on the action beats too long. Because there are a few action beats in this movie, but not lingering on them for more than they need to. And kind of having that thing of, if you're looking at this as a nightmare, which it very much kind of is, if you're looking at it through that lens, I can see this movie working on a tighter level. So much fat on it. It has just so many things that go on and don't really mean a ton. And again, like you're mentioning kind of the defenders of this movie. And I know a few defenders of this movie who wholeheartedly embrace this. But for a movie this, for a movie this locked in, Let's just say for me, like, if you remember back to, like, Uncut Gems, like, I reviewed that for ASU Odyssey years ago, and one of my issues with that movie was I appreciated the tone of that movie, how it is this movie that is completely on edge and never really lets you sink into it. And this is kind of the same thing, but it's also double the length of that. It's through the eyes of a character who doesn't have the assured kind of cockiness and arrogance that Adam Sandler does in that movie, and it's also the kind of movie that, again, from a nightmarish perspective, just encourage you to like, go explore, be with the world. And if you're not into that, or if you're not complete, even if you're completely sympathetic to Bo, nothing good happens to him in this movie. Like it's a movie where just you start to feel bad for him by a certain point, And the movie just goes, good, feel bad. You're not getting anything out of this. I want him to want more for himself, but we understand why he can't because of, I, I mean, his childhood memories don't speak to a lot. For me, in my experience, like I didn't think that this, the cruise ship scenes really spoke to a lot of the bow that we understood in present day. It wasn't until the introduction of Patty Lupone in the final act of this film that I really understood why Bo 
had felt and lived his life the way he did. Um, Bill Hader has a random cameo, which I think is hilarious, but yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some people I think were, you know, turned off by that. Well, at least from the reactions I've heard, some people were turned off by Hader's, um, scene, you know, and where it happens, it's actually a phone call between Bo and, um, his character. He plays a UPS driver who actually finds, uh, the body of a loved one that Bo is learning about then and there. So for me, it was very frightening. Like listening to that, to that scene, I actually was very much yeah. getting the appeal that I was signing up for with an Astor film. Like, oh, this is the, this is the rawness that he brings to his horror. I am, I'm, I'm strapped in. It didn't help that it was in the first maybe 15 ish minutes because it gave me false hope that what I was strapping in for was going to be a journey that, um, you know, stuck with those tones, uh, but it didn't. And so, uh, now getting back to the narrative itself. Yes. Bo as an unreliable, um, can we call him an unreliable narrator or like just a, uh, I, I think he is in this case because his anxieties and his, unassuredness are completely playing into that. Like you talk about the scene with the, uh, with the UPS phone caller. First of all, I think Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix is doing a really good job in this movie. Like he completely gets the bit of what is demanded of him um, in yes. this kind of, you know, reverting back to your nine, 10 year old self, but never growing out of that and always having that sense of, again, wobbliness to your own sense of security. And that scene really embodies that. Like you look at his facial reactions and then the way that again, Astor and Johnson cut and choose not to cut in that next scene with what happens with his reaction. It's dread-filled and just really unsettling, but I think in a really good way and where the movie kind of um, gets its legs in that. For a portion of this film, it's misery. It's, um, you know, when it involves Amy Ryan, there are scenes in this film that run on longer than you'd expect. And then ultimately like either they don't contribute to a reality that you can make sense of. Um, and what I mean by that is like, there are situations that Bo goes through that he ends up on the other side of. And I think to myself, okay, I understand that maybe none of that happened the way that we saw it, but it's becoming difficult for me to extract reason and consequence and, you know, just a through line for his journey. And so when you say this is like a nightmare, yes, it's like a nightmare. It's like a dream where maybe you are in a parking garage and then, and then the next in the middle of a marshmallow monster, like you don't really know how the two are related to each other, if at all, but in a movie where I expect that, Oh yeah. I just sound like, I feel like I sound like a hater, but I did not hate this film. I just, it's like with the Marvel films. Unfortunately, I'm disappointed because of my own expectations. And so if you're coming into this film, yeah, in no way am I wrapping our discussion. We're going to continue on because there's more to talk about. But if you're coming into this film with the expectations that Aster is going to um, amplify the expectations already placed on him for his previous two horror films, there are some reviews out there. There are some like clips um, on an advertisement that display this as like a horror comedy. I wouldn't call it a horror there are like two or three sequences where I thought, okay, this is genuinely unsettling, but I wouldn't say it's flat out horror. I'm talking about the the Amy Ryan sequence or the Amy Ryan, you know, set piece. And then I'm also talking about the play. It had that feeling of when it wrapped up of me going, why did you do that? I, I genuinely would like to know, like, why did you do that? First of all, I want to go back to the Amy Ryan thing because it allows okay. me to bring up Kylie Rogers. Holy crap. Where did Astor find this girl? She is so unsettling and so uncomfortable in this movie. And like, She's not in it that much, but like 
when she gets to play off Joaquin Phoenix, it's that semblance of like, it makes the cruise ship scenes worth it because it's that parallel of seeing, you know, Bo as an adult kind of look at femininity in the way that he did as a kid. And it's really disturbing. Um, but yes, yeah, she's terrific. And I just want to bring her up. But the play scene, I'm glad you brought up as well, because I didn't find that whole group very interesting. They kind of do that very purposely. The actual sequence, like with the play, is really cool. And it's probably one of my favorite sequences in the movie where it just goes absolutely nuts with the production design and the art direction and everything. But it looks like, astounding. Exactly. But like the problem is with that scene, when that wraps, I thought, okay, we've established the entirety of Bo's character. I'm hoping from here Aster can take this in a direct. Oh, nope. There's it. And then there's the stuff with the house and there's the ending. What have we learned different about that? And it's a whole nother hour of the movie that, again, is just swimming in Bo's worst tendencies. And Aster, again, just kind of playing him like a puppet master of like, yeah, look at his misery. Again, going back to the misery metaphor. And it's fine because, again, like it's not the worst thing. It's still interesting. Like we'll get to the ending when we get to it. But it's a thing of when that happened, I went well, what else are you going to do? I'm going to speak to you now a big spoiler of the film because after that play sequence, Bo is on the run now because there is a uh, a former, let's just call him um, uh former soldier, former person who has served. And after Bo has fleed from a house where it looks like he like, it looks like he killed one of the family members. Um, the moms just pretty much uh, assigns his assassination to this person um, who has previously served, like I said. But uh, earlier on, you learned that this character really suffers from PTSD. And so he goes full, like, you know, warrior's vest on assault rifle out and he pursues Bo. So now we're, we're under the impression that, okay, like there's something pursuing this man. Like, wh- like what's going on now? now? Now we have like some, there's a heat on his trail. Where can this go? Um, where it goes is Bo ends up finally making it throughout this whole journey. He has been made, he has been, um, making efforts to attend his mother's funeral. And that is because her, one of her final wishes was that Bo be present for her burial and he learns this information. And so then the pressure's on for him to make it on time because, uh, he, he interacts with an individual who just really brings about like the person Bo is believed to be from the outside world because he is so non-self-sufficient or something of the like. So he's pressured into reaching his mother's house with this kind of timeline so that everybody can go through her service. And so when he gets there, the funeral is already completed. She's not buried yet, but her body's in there. Here's the thing. The body's missing a head. That is Ari Aster and me going, oh, that looks so good. And it's so bad. Attending your, oh, no, I'm not even going to play with that scenario. So well, it, it's not even attending your own mother's funeral. It's attending your own mother's funeral when there's no one else there and you are left to see it in your own just grief. And again, your own anxious grief. He pays his respects to his mother and when it just about seems like he's ready to turn in for the night, he recognizes that there's a woman who actually arrives and it's none other than the young girl he met on the cruise ship who once asked him to save himself or to really wait for her. And so he notices her and it takes a while for them to, to really connect on that familiarity, on that history that they both shared. Mind you, 
very much like a dream because I cannot see a young teen retaining a memory now well into whatever Bo's age is. I'm going to say about sixties and, and then like keeping up with that promise. Like I'm still working to understand her placement in this film. They, try to follow up on the emotions, the attraction that they had when they were young. It leads into this moment that really shocked me and made me go, huh? Wait, what? Huh? Brandon, what? Can we say the thing? Okay. Well, there's several things. Okay. Well, so I'll, the, I'll... The, the, the thing in that scene where the character comes in. Yes. Let's talk about that thing. So, Bo and do you know her name? Uh, Elaine. Yeah, Elaine. Bo and Elaine are having sex. It is, from our understanding, Bo's first time having sex. He we, has learned that we should, his. We should sorry. We should say that real quick. Is a big thing where like Bo yes. as a child was encouraged not to have sex because apparently his father had sex with his mom and then died while they were doing it. Yes, died upon. Oh, can you can you bleep this word? <laughs> He's as, like. As she says, finishing. Yeah. <laughs> Died upon finishing. And so, uh, the movie plays with this, with this tease because it flashes it a couple times. I noticed it and I went like, why is he, why is it so big? <laughs> he has like inflated testicles. And so a doctor wants to look at it at some point. And it's kind of one of those things that's just like, this movie's three hours long. It's long enough for you to forget that it happened. And then you go, is this ever going to come up again? Like, why did, why did that happen? And it's not the only thing that you ask yourself why about this film, but moving on, he's never had sex because he believes that he has a heart murmur and that he might, he will die if he ever is to do that. And so then he moves on and he has sex. Elaine knows the ropes. Okay. She's already got a playlist. She restarts a Mariah Carey song, not once, but twice. You she will is... never hear that Mariah Carey song the same way again. <laughs> And so she's on top of Bo and they are getting down. They're getting down. And so Bo really, I'm sorry for that moment. <laughs> Bo um, has a moment of bliss and, you know, he really enjoys himself. He's very scared up until that point. Like he is so terrified of it, but Elaine knows what she's doing. So she gets him there. And then uh, Elaine being a woman in her own right says, you know what? Like now it's my turn. So she goes ahead and takes the reins and she says, I'm going to do this thing. Whoa. I think that she's made it. Hold on. She's staying still. Wait, what's going on? Bo is afraid. Noah is afraid. She's dead on top of him. Rigor mortis has set in within seconds. What a twist. Bo throws her body off of him. She kind of flies off like a, like a chess piece, literally. And he is, he hears a voice around the corner and it is Patty Lapone. And who does she play as? She is Bo's mother. Now, her first, one of her first few lines is like, aren't you surprised to see me? Cause she walks in. She's like, you were just mourning my, you know, headless body out there five minutes ago, but now you're up here in my bedroom doing whatever the hell it is, you know, you were doing with this woman. Aren't you surprised? And Bo is kind of just like, I knew you were alive because big shock Shyamalan twist. There was like some kind of burn on the body's hand. And Bo remembered that at the same time we were shown it, the hands actually belonged to the the housekeeper that his mother had around the house. And then it enters this, uh, it gives background in saying that in order to um, make the family of 
this housekeeper's uh, well off until the end of time. They agreed to have her killed. Why they did that? I couldn't tell you, Brandon, you want to chime in on this part of the discussion? Because it is a, it is a moment of like, here's all of my cards that I've been holding the whole time. And I asked myself, like, when were we playing cards? Like, when were these things to reveal? Yeah. Cause the thing about that scene, it's not just the mom and it's not just the housekeeper. It's also Elaine who the mom claims is like, Oh, like, I guess she said she worked for me, but like, I don't know, maybe it's like a shell company or whatever. And then like Steve McKinley Henderson, who was the therapist, like he's apparently, and it becomes this whole thing where like Bo's life becomes the Truman show where it's that thing of, yes, yeah. Where it's that thing of like, everything you did was orchestrated by me. Ha ha. Like that kind of thing. But it also takes away from that illusion of, you know, it takes away from that idea of, well, it's all through Bo's eyes, but it's not, it's orchestrated by his mother who is a whole enigma of a character to unwrap in herself, despite the fact that she only physically appears in like that last 20 to 30 minutes or so. And it just, again, it took me out of the movie knowing before the thing happens that we'll get to, but it actually took me out of the movie and just going, you've taken away from the illusion. You've made it a movie that is so orchestrated and so defined. It goes to a point of Bo like bringing out these resentful statements of his mother because of the life that she forced him into. Um, and credit to Patty Lapone, She is fantastic. Oh my gosh. Yes. Patty Lapone. as much as I'm, as much as I'm dragging this film, she steps in and she gets the job done. She understood the assignment. And I think that, you know, applause to Helen back for her. It's, that, that was amazing to see her. Um, but okay. So, you know, after hearing these, after hearing these remarks from her son, her one and only son, so we think, um, Bo has this small memory or this small imagined idea that there was a time his mother was very upset with another young boy in the same space as he when they were young, that she, as a form of punishment, invited him up into the attic or actually forced him up into the attic, shut him up there and left him. And Bo remembers that. But, you know, maybe it's a dream. Maybe it was something random. Well, after hearing these statements, she she actually like she forces him down the hall and she well goes ahead and opens that attic for him to climb up. This is only after like random men in black show up and remove Elaine's body as if it was just like I said, a chess piece and just take her out of the picture completely. We never see them again. Um, then Bo traverses up into the attic and his mother shouts to him, you know, maybe it wasn't a dream. You remember it because it was a memory. And then she shuts the attic door. And just like in uh, Hereditary, there's some scary things to reveal in the attic. He starts looking around with a flashlight. Lo and behold, it is his brother. Oh, my God. Well, oh, I, well, I believe it's also played by Joaquin Phoenix, I want to say. Maybe. I think is that, maybe. Is that not Joaquin Phoenix, just like really skinny and emaciated? I wish I could remember the visual, Brandon, but unfortunately there is another visual that just overshadows everything. Mother of all spoilers, Bo meets his father in the attic. Okay. And by meeting his father, I mean, who is his father? A giant dick. His father is a giant CGI monstrous dick. It might've been puppetry. Uh, perhaps puppetry, perhaps, but oh my God, can you imagine an animatronic penis that big? I only want it to be puppetry because I want to know Ari Aster putting in the order to the puppet <laughs> company. It's this, I swear to God, it's for a movie. 
Um, it's like an alien penis, though. Like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's what anybody's penis looks like. But that is not this podcast. Anyways, there's like these random like cockroach, like praying mantis tentacles or like uh, talons on it. And I'm like, what? what is that? What is that? And that's I... what Bo says. He's like, what is that? And the audience is saying, what is that? So let that moment live on to serve into what this picture is. But okay, remember that PTSD afflicted soldier who I mentioned earlier? He shows up. He starts fighting Bo's father, giant dick. He gets impaled through the forehead with one of the, the, the dicks, talon praying mantis spikes. Mona, which is uh, his mother's character. I, we, I've neglected to say her name this far. Mona reveals she's like, that is your father. And I, and I'm in on the joke. You know, I get it. Okay. Yes. He is a big dick, but part of me goes like, okay, I watch movies so differently though, because I also had the thought of, does she meet like, is Bo Loki? Like, is he an alien kind of like, is he like a legit alien? Because is that why like he's brought up kind of weird? Is this kind of like a story of close encounters of the fourth kind of the fifth kind? Like, okay. Mona raised him very special. Bo is a very special person. All of this perception now this altered reality can be explained because he doesn't have the human DNA. He has DNA that is also mixed with like, see, I, I'm convincing myself. I'm gaslighting myself into believing that this is another movie than what it is. And that's unfortunately, that's my own sense of like, Oh, I'm going to make reason for this film only for it to not be that at all. Bo is not a, just so you know, Bo is not an alien. He's not. Okay. I, there's no need to Google it. I know I'm wrong. Uh, but Brandon. I love the fact that this is basically turning into a therapy session for you to unpack this <laughs> no, movie. It is, it is. Um, I, th- I mean, what really happened in this film? Bo woke up and realized he needed to see his mother because she asked him to, because he had a, a trip planned there. Um, he goes and buys her a gift. He comes back home and prepares way too late to leave to the airport, realizes he lost his key in the apartment building. Oh, I'm like legit going to spoil the movie. Um, Realizes he lost his apartment key, learns of his mother's passing, decides he needs to go there, gets hit and assaulted, gets hit by a car and assaulted with a knife on his way out the door, is healed by this woman who ends up like kind of... uh overbearing their sense of protection and their sense of like security for Bo. So Bo feels the need to escape. I don't know if the daughter really died. I don't know like what happens there, but Bo escapes. She runs. Um, It's very possible that the Rambo dude never chases him, right? Like he, she, he probably never chases him. So Bo doesn't get chased, but he runs through the woods and he encounters a campsite and he, believes it to be a story of his life and possibly sees himself staying there forever because I think he's escaping from where he's going. And then he shows up to his mother's funeral house at, at, at the end, finally. And he imagines himself running into his childhood love. That never happens though. She, Elaine never shows up, but his mother still pops out and his mother has now messed with him so hard that he has this break point. I'm kind of starting to break. Is his, does his mother really show up in this, in this story that I'm telling? I think she does. I think, or is that his worst imagine? Because I can see Bo imagining that he remembered that, that print on the housekeeper's hand. Do we, you know, he says, I saw the, I saw the handprint. That could be him saying, I saw one 
I saw one error in my memory of my mother. So I remembered it was this one associated detail of another person who could have been involved in her life. But he sees his mother as like this evil character who could construe this entire story just for his attention. I suppose it could, because really the only two things that you need to happen in this movie are that Bo leaves his apartment and then he gets on the boat at the end. Those are the only two things that need to like real world, quote unquote, happen in this movie. He gets on the boat at the end and he, his, his sense of who he was has, is dead. It's gone. I think it might just be like you're saying it. I don't think he, you know, kills Mona in the end with the fish tank kind of thing. I think it's much more of an idea of him. I think he does go to his home. I think he does see the body there. But I think in that moment, I think he sees everything pivotal that we are shown beforehand flashing before him. He sees a memory of his mother. You know, he sees, you know, maybe he does actually climax in his mother's room, but like he doesn't have sex in there. Like it's just him doing it for some, you know, kind of, long-term game kind of thing you know maybe he does go into the attic and he sees like a remnant of his father or like a uh, like a relic kind of thing and he sees it because i've seen like the theory that he sees his dad as a penis because that's how he always imagined him as like i never knew my dad he was just a guy that you know had sex with my mom so like i can imagine that being kind of thing of maybe he views it in that kind of again obtuse childlike way but again it also brings to mind of like the theater scene where that doesn't need to happen because Jeeves, who's the assassin guy, has no bearing on the story. You know, we're going through like this whole massacre, spoiler, the theater people get massacred and it becomes this thing of like, okay, if this doesn't happen, and that was the point where I started to think, you know, this is really diverging into meta text and things that don't really add up in a real world quote sense. But if that doesn't happen, and especially doesn't happen from Bo's logic, why am I watching this? It's just a series <laughs> of elongated images. <laughs> Brandon, the most important question. Why am I watching this? But you know what? I want to say this. And before we get to ratings, rarely was I bored. Be it, honest. There, there were points where I was bored, but there were few of them. And the thing about it was it's, I've heard people be like, oh, it's a movie that I never want to watch again, but I have to watch again. And I'm kind of in the same camp where like, I want to dissect it, but I also have no intention of sitting with this three-hour madhouse ever again. Give Aster another hour and then give me four episodes because this as a three-hour pickup was not, was not. You know what? I, I could have seen this as a four-hour long miniseries. I could have seen it as a much tighter, just over two-hour movie. Again, akin to something like Big Fish or maybe like the first it Lord has of the Rings four movie. Set, it literally has four set pieces. You can do one, two, three, four, and I'll I'll eat it up. But also, again, I think there are structural things in there, like the theater sequence, like the whole ending thing with the boat in the stadium, where, like, I just think there are ways to tidy up this kind of story of a guy reconciling with a toxic family relationship and misguided memories of his past and trying to entangle them all with his own anxiety or attempting to untangle them with his own anxiety, I should say. And that is an interesting story. But this is just an exercise in that to make really trippy imagery and give Walking Phoenix and Patti Lapone some of the best scenes of their career. Brandon, as we get into ratings, I'll go ahead and do my first. What's so funny about this film is as I've been approached, you know, uh, and people ask, you know, oh, have you seen Bo is Afraid and what are your thoughts on it? I, I tell them the same story. I go, pretend I'm the wizard at the beginning of the bridge. And I say, heed this warning. You know? <laughs> don't, don't go any further. And then as they're walking away, That's... you're like, I warned you. 
I warn you. That's me. And then I fade into the fog. And you ask yourself, maybe I should have believed that wizard at the front. Heed this warning. I'm just, I'm showing support to my friend here. I want you to rate the film. And I'm worried that you might rate like your, your extraction of meaning from this film. And I'm like, damn, if you dare to do that, I will, I will riot in the streets. That, that'll be my, that'll be my plot device to strike. I'm, I'm going on strike if Brandon gives a rating that I think does not serve that idea. Okay. Over to my rating. Um, confusion and chaos. Uh, plot. Joaquin Phoenix. Amazing. Yes. Um, editing. Mwah. Brandon has already, uh, given that it's flowers. Um, production. Yes. I mean, this is a film that has the budget and that has gone there. And I don't feel performances are lackluster here. I only feel like the sense and the story is lack, is lacking here for a viewer like myself. Um, this might be somebody's freaking cup of tea and their pinnacle of cinema. I'm going to go ahead and give a Bo is Afraid. I'm going to give that a three out of 10, um, which feels mean and like not even based on anything, but I know I can't give it a five. I know it's less than that. I know it's better than a one. I appreciate the performances, but uh, it's this, that story should make up for some, for more of the point, more than half the points here. And fortunately it's not there. Three out of 10 for me. I am going to quickly like go along the lines of like other similar overly indulgent movies that I've talked about in years past. Like The Irishman, I gave like a solid six and a half. Like Babylon, I pretty much went five and a half. Like these are not movies that are made for me. I understand their worth. I, you know, completely, I, I completely accept their, you know, sense of scale and everything and respect why they're made. And this is no different. I agree with you. Like Phoenix and Lupone's performances are terrific. And a couple of the sporting performances are pretty good as well. Technically, it's very immaculate, the editing. And uh, Paolo Pogro-Lesgi, I want to say, is the cinematographer who did all of Ari Aster's other movies. They make this vision that is so distinct to this, and I really respect it. It's still a 4 out of 10. I thought you were going to give a 6, Brandon, and this was my meh. Like, oh, look at me. I know you so well, Brandon. <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm impressed, Brandon. I'm impressed. I should say, actually, just saying that I'm bumping up to 4.5, which is not that big of a difference, but it's... Here's why I'm giving it 4.5, because, again, I think... There is craft on display. It's not in its meandering. I think there is meaning in there. Again, I can see this being either pulled out to something truly terrific or shortened into something really, you know, insightful about that character's experience. Again, this is something where when Ari Aster describes this as the Jewish Lord of the Rings, I get where he's coming from and all the Jewish subtext I would love to go into, but we simply don't have the time right now. But there is something to this movie and I really admire that it's being made. But again, it just, it didn't resonate with me by a certain point. I liked where it was going for a certain degree. I liked seeing Bo grow, if you want to call him that, or at least accept who he is and accept his circumstances. But Ari Aster is just so concerned with putting the character through the ringer and it gets tedious after a while. The nightmarish scale and pacing of it just didn't stick with me as much as I wanted to. Again, as Noah and I have pointed out, this may very well be your thing. Like, if you love overly long movies that dare to challenge you on their symbolism and their characters and just complete unlikability, yeah, this will be your thing. And all the power to you. It is in theaters right now if you want to support it. But yeah, four and a half for me. I was very mixed on it, and that is being very kind to it. And last but not least, on our new releases today, as if we haven't gone long enough on this darn episode, uh, we're going from, like, lighthearted to dark to even darker, and now into... What I think is pretty light, I would say. Uh, Suzume, this is the newest feature from Makoto Shinkai, aka the guy who did Your Name, who did Weathering With You, incredibly accomplished uh, Japanese anime filmmaker. This is his new film. It's out in the it's out in the States right now after having a pretty good run in Japan. 
Uh, Noah, tell us what Suzume is about. And uh, there's a worm. Hopefully you're still there, listener. I'm just going to go ahead and give you a nice um, tap, 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 you know, uh, wake up. I know we've been going long, but uh, I promise we have a wrap up coming soon. And I, I, this think, is... I think you're going to like what we have to say about this one. Yes, I, I, I want to second that because here in Suzumi, I just I have so much faith that whether we've now like <laughs> silenced your interest with our with our rambling on and on and about Bo's and Freight, um, we are we are wrapping strong here. So let's go ahead and change up the tone, get the energy behind this new film that comes from uh director of I know the feature's titled Your Name, but unfortunately I haven't gotten around to it. But writer director Makoto Shinkai, I this is my introduction to his work, and this was awesome. Like, in all senses of the word, awesome. What what an amazing experience in the theater. So I'm going to give you the plot as I've described it uh, conversationally. So, boom. Picture this. All right. Imagine there are doors scattered around your city and or state, and... Every now and again, those doors open. Now, what comes through those doors? Well, there just so happens to be a dimensional type of being. Um, there's not one, but there are plenty of this thing. And for lack of a better word, both in conversation and in this film, we're going to call it a worm. Now, this kind of worm you can imagine as like a celestial, just like being like it has that type of strength and, um, power behind it but once they push through these doors and they they go into the sky they rise and they rise and imagine a worm you know you're you're still there with me well once they get to uh, their peak of height they fall to the earth and they cause earthquakes you know that is part of the fantasy that is the world building in suzumi or suzumi and so there are people, let's say myself and Brandon, there are people called closers. So closers have a responsibility of seeking out these doors and shutting them before these worms can reach their strongest and fall to the earth. And what happens when a young girl comes across a closer and really becomes infatuated by this man? Um, his name is Sauta. And once Suzume crosses paths with Sauta, she now feels attraction like of course she wants to seek out whatever location this young you know hunk was going after because she has interests you know and so she she pushes towards the destination that he's going to only to realize that that is what he's doing he's there as a closer and he's shutting this door that is um really being blasted by this worm approaching its peak and we're going to get into specific details but that all happens before the title sequence and it is a moment of pure just uh it's explosive in its energy. I, I was one of the coolest title drops I've seen in a while. And I said, evil dead rise had a good one. Like, yes. That... This, this was a week of just beautiful uh, title sequences. Uh, minus Bo is afraid, but evil dead rise and Susan May. I mean, uh, we should make banners for this type of stuff. It is beautiful. Um, but really that's the plot. Okay. Within the worm world, so you say, there are two keystones which act as defenders in that realm to keep the worms at bay. Well, um, when Suzume arrives to the first door, um, and I, I might, I jumbled my story here just a little bit, but she sees it first. And when she looks through it, this is, um, with Sauta absent, she looks through it. She almost recognizes something from her past. And so it begs the question of, wait, why does this feel familiar when something comes through and she engages with it? And we learn 
through the plot that she has now released a keystone. So now that one of the two guardians of this realm are released into the wild, Suzume and Sauta have to go on an adventure to shut these doors themselves, to learn more and more about each other, um, to learn more about themselves when it comes to Suzume as our lead, and ultimately, like, see what... Um, what attraction can blossom between them, what kind of stakes are held and what they can achieve together. And it it's gorgeous. Have you seen your name and how, how did you enter uh, this film from Shang, from Shinkai? And what was your impression when you walked out that theater? I have not seen your name. I have not seen weathering with you. I have heard a lot about Shinkai's work in the past several years. And going into this, I heard one thing above a lot of other things, which is that apparently his work, it's focused on a lot of character, uh, a lot of character examination, a lot of emotional weight, not the most consistent story beats. And I was a little worried about that going in, but I was like, okay, you know, it, the trailers look immaculate, as you say. You know, it had this kind of really interesting supernatural fantasy s story to it. And you know what? I think those criticisms are warranted. Uh, my biggest criticism does come with the story, and we might get into it, might not. But yeah, this is a very good movie. Like almost borderline great, I would call it. Uh, I, I was really impressed by how much I just wanted to be around the characters. Like, these are flawed characters, but, like, I like Suzume very much. I like Sauta. I love Daijin, who is the cat character they come across, who is so much fun. Um, uh, there's an ant character who is Suzume's aunt. There's um, a classmate of uh, Sauta's who we run into. There's a lot of, like, really fun side characters in the movie takes advantage of really nicely and i was just surprised at how much that camaraderie for as scatters as it can feel i really felt that stick above everything else on top of the mythology of it all which again from a story point of view i think has a few holes in it but from a more emotional hefty point of view and like a symbolism point of view i think there's a lot to discuss in there so i found especially seeing this twice once in uh, japanese and then once in the uh, english dub i found there to be a lot of really cool commonalities to explore and just a lot of really cool symbolism and themes that the movie was tackling i didn't wholeheartedly fall in love with it but i liked it a lot more than i thought it i already know that um your viewing of the english version uh, was only heightened by uh, the excitement that came with seeing me in the middle of that movie yes. brandon so uh <laughs> but you made uh, the last half of that movie better because i was like my friend's like 10 feet away yeah. Meanwhile, I'm in Bo is afraid going, I'm grumpy. <laughs> Urgh, why didn't Brandon tell me about this? <laughs> Two very different reactions. Me. Yay. You. Ah! <laughs> um, so Suzumi, let's talk about our title. Let's talk about our lead character. Um, should we talk about Sauda and his condition? Uh, They'll find out. There's a chair involved. There's a chair involved. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but when it comes to Suzumi, she is a, I believe sophomore or junior in high school. I can't completely remember. She is a, she's a junior because she talks to the other girl and they have that. She's a junior in high school. She's very, like very young, still, I think, discovering who she is. And the movie is an example of that. You know, she is, she doesn't make the best decisions. She's very selfish. She, um, to say that she's inconsiderate of her aunt would just be redundant, but yeah, she just wants to go on adventure and she's, She's chasing after her heart. And I think it's very, I think it's easy to lose yourself in your emotions at that age because you're still figuring out like, how do I bound these things? Much like how do they bound a loose keystone when the consequence of that is city destroying earthquakes? Part of the mythology of this film is that Suzume, for some reason, has this, um, 
you know, she's able to see these worms as they come into the real world. That's why Sauta and her have this connection because they both came at the same time. So she is a closer or so I believe. Um, now everybody else in the room. It's more of like she's a closer by default. Like she wasn't trained as one, but she can kind of just do all the things that a closer can. Because she, because she was lost as a child, yes. I think. Um, so the rest of the world doesn't know that these things are going on. They are aware of when an earthquake happens, but they're not aware of these, you know, these, these giant bodies of, um, energy that hover above them until they fall down to the earth. And so I, I found that part interesting just because this is an adventure that is completely their own. And the more and more people they let in, the more and more they're looked at as kind of like, Oh, you must be losing your mind. And um maybe that's like, Oh, you lose your mind in love. Oh my gosh. Look at my heart. It's exploding with butterflies. Um, Psych. This movie's not, not that lovey dovey. Um, I, I actually want to build off that real quick because one of the big themes that I had heard a lot of discussion about was the idea that this was inspired by a lot of in Japan. There's a huge, there's apparently a huge urbanization effort to move people into the cities, like away from rural areas. And a lot of the theme of the movie is these abandoned schools or abandoned theme parks, like areas that have been left for dead and rot, apparently. And I think going to that point of like only Suzume and Sauta can see that, I think Shinkai is trying to tackle the idea of like, these are places that matter, that even though they're decrepit and nobody wants to see them, but like, they have worth. And as we, see, as we see when they close the doors around them, they inhabit like the memories and spaces of the people who are around that. And I think that's very much a visual cue instead of like a more world building tool, just to be like the idea of not everyone wants to care about these places. Like they would rather just let that, you know, apartment complex go down and just hope something new comes around. But like not, uh, not Sauta and Suzume, they see the beauty in that. They see like the humanity in that. And I kind of like that as the movie goes on of like embracing the true beauty in lost things that becomes very apparent in the last like 10 minutes. But I really like that idea going forward. Yeah, I do too. I think that just listening to you, Brandon discuss uh, whether or not it was, or I mean, maybe it was, I, I haven't done um, my homework of learning Shinkai's intention with the location of the doors, but if it's to provide a voice to these abandoned locations, whether they be all of which are beautiful in their own right, whether they be an amusement park, a hospital, and even in that final area, uh, it's not much of a spoiler, but it is, it, it's in an old familiar location to Suzume, but has now had its homes uprooted. Like there is only foundational basis for the community that used to exist there. And now it is a skeleton of what it once was. Suzume, I love that they animate her with a, f a few gray strands that blow in the wind and, and you see them. And I love that. You know, I, I, uh, I recently chopped my hair, but my hair's thick. And when you find a gray hair, you know, they're like, oh, your grays are showing. I'm like, okay, which one? Because they're everywhere. And it's like this um, illusion to have perfectly, you know, solid colored hair. It's like, no, you gray when you gray. And so Suzume, um, maybe it's not even gray. Like maybe I'm just like completely projecting onto her, but let me project. Okay. Let me and fellow gray haired people project. Uh, yes, locations and environments, all very beautiful. I wanted to touch base on the 311 earthquake that is used as a historical background, um, in the movie Suzume. So it actually is, uh, in 2011, you know, and this is me kind of extracting just from what I can on a brief Google search, but, um, I'm learning of the earthquake in Japan. Uh, it's referred to as the Great East Japan earthquake and it happened March 11th, 2011. And I, I connected with an individual in the, the the same theater as me before the movie started. We just started chatting about like our expectations going in. And he um, shared with me that all he knows about this film is that 
it um it might tell the story of that earthquake so going into the film i was really preparing for that kind of tragedy but then to learn how they use that historical event and to know that like just based on my experience it looked like it it wasn't used for more than necessary, right? Like they didn't want to tell the story of all of the lives that were lost during that event or try and replicate it. I think that they um, did drive the stakes up to that level of intensity of look what could happen, look what has happened in the past, look what could happen again. Like that's where we're at right now with the peak of what threat is out there. And so um, I, I just thought I found appreciation in that. So if you want to find out more, uh, Google 311 earthquake for yourself, uh, the Great East Japan earthquake, and you'll find out. But uh, Brandon, were you aware at all of that real life event? Shout out to my friend Hana, who pointed that out to me uh, after the fact, because I, I knew that there was subtext around the 2011 quake, but I, I, I didn't know that was an expectation going in is what I should say. This movie uh, yes, it has the fantasy in there. Um, the key, they use keys to shut these doors. And every time they pull out those keys, it's as if they're pulling out. You'd think it was the, the key that, um, what's his name? Cloud in from Kingdom Hearts. Oh, no, you're thinking of like the keyblades that Sora uses. No. Oh, yeah, by Sora. That's his name. So you'd think it was the keyblade that Sora has because the type of flair that they pull these keys out with. And it's like, you know, they whip them around their bodies and there's almost like lightning that surrounds them. It looks cool as hell. Like, as I'm an anime fan. I'm also just an action fan. And I just love beautiful imagery. And here... um they know how to use the colors and the um the flashiness, so to speak, whenever it's scenes involving those doors. Whether the balance is really there for the closing of the doors, which are like kind of like the major plot points, versus more lighthearted scenes where Suzume has to travel with her aunt and uh Sauda's classmate, and they're kind of just entering a you know, a, a road trip type of scene, or there's the, there's the cute, there's the cute see let's babysit two children together where Sauta and Suzume have to pick up um, babysitting duty for a mother who has allowed Suzume to like pretty much hitchhike with her. Uh, those, whether they balance, you know, whether they are equal to each other in terms of energy and um, what they provide to the story, I don't know, but that's where I'm at right now with where I've seen Susume. How about you, Brandon? You've seen it twice, so I'm hoping you can provide a little bit more here. Oh, God. Now I have three points to make. Okay, no no, no, no pressure. No um, pressure. <laughs> well, well, no. So the first thing about like the, the balance of it all, I think the charm with the kind of epic scale works up until the road trip stuff. I found that that stuff dragged the movie a little bit. I'm there. Yeah, I agree. There's still really great moments in that sequence, but it is kind of the thing of like, and now we're in a car. Yay. Um, regarding the imagery bits, I, again, the animation is stunningly good and the colors they use and the way they use lighting is fantastic. The way they show, they call it the Ever After, which is this whole other realm that the the worms are from. The way they use like the purples and greens, like, it, it looks like a realm of like Aurora Borealis, if you want to call it that. But more than that, I love just the choices of imagery that they make. Like, again, you mentioned the whole key thing where it's, you know, it is the key, but it's also like this flare of like blue and orange light with like archaic runic symbols and this kind of thing. Um, I know people have criticized the way the worm looks, specifically the final form that we get, where it's more CG than it is 2D. I thought it was really unique and cool. Um, and this is a tiny spoiler. I, I, it's not huge, like it happens really on the movie. The chair, the way the chair moves the first time around, 
I was laughing myself stupid because the way this chair moves is like any action hero you can think of. Like it shouldn't move the way it does. And I was laughing myself stupid. Like this doesn't make any sense. And I love this. I'm going to look, I'm never going to look at a stool the same, Brandon. And I'm going to look at a stool with four legs. I'm going to go, no, you should be missing one. (laughs) And then it has really poignant moments. And I'm like, I love this, but also I can't stop laughing at this stupid chair. Boy, leave it to leave it to uh, Shinkai to teach me that I can feel sympathy, empathy for a wooden chair and do so for more than an hour. So, um, yeah, I, I hadn't expected that. I didn't expect that at all. But speaking more to what I didn't expect was, yes, Daijin. Daijin as a good little kitty who is being mischievous and a little, honestly, he's a little asshole <laughs> for the film. Um, Daijin, it, is a, Daijin is voiced by Anya Mane in the Japanese version, Lena Murano in the English version, and both are great. Thank you. And there's one, I think, kind of like random card they pull, and that's Sa Daijin. I wasn't able to really put a definition on it. What I saw was something evil, like a malevolent being who was the guardian to Daijin, but who could bring about more of like the ferocity, whereas Daijin is the, the yin, you know, like the yin and the yang. That's, that's where the balance of them two are. Um, that's just me trying to apply thought to it now. But what, what was your meaning? The more we get to the keystone stuff, the more the story bumbles for me. Uh, just because again, like you mentioned when, you know, the second keystone in, um, uh, in the other cat pops up and it's that thing of, cool, what does this represent? And the movie doesn't really give us any hints. Not because it doesn't want to, but I think it's just because it's moving on towards like the end of the road trip segment and then the big climax and then the emotional build. Like it has other things to worry about. But that kind of mythology, and then especially once we get to the final fight, it's a thing of, okay, the keystones are meant to do this thing. And Daijin is awakened by Suzume because of this. Okay, fair enough. So then we get to the, the door stuff. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so Daijin is blocking the worm, and the other one is also blocking the worm. Great. But then they both show up, and one of them has a connection to another character who we see later on. But that character is mostly out of the picture, but is still really important. And then we get to the final fight, and they're important, but, you know, Salta and Suzumi have their arcs filled. It's a it's this very muddled thing that I still haven't found a reason for. And I'm sure there's someone out there who's watched Suzume and is like, no, that means, like, the yin-yang thing. That means, like, this thing when it comes to, like, nature versus i'm sure it does but it was one of the things where even watching the movie twice in two different versions i kept thinking to myself okay i'm into this like i want to see where the characters go but like what are you doing i took my rating down 0.5 because of that because of your i don't mean to i just have to be honest i'm sorry no yeah no it's there though like i'm i'm kind of in that lane with you going yeah wait Hey, <laughs> but, but but again, like the thematic resonance is there, like the climax uh-huh. lands when, you know, the characters have to deal with their arcs. It's really poignant and does tie into the larger themes. It, and again, it goes to that idea of like, I think Shinkai. And again, this is the only movie I've seen from the guy, but like, it's that idea of like, I want the characters and emotional weight to impact you more than just thinking, well, how does this lead to this? Because like world building only does so much. All I can conjure right now is because it was at the time that Sauta transitioned Mm. i think that that's why since there was one the other could leave to like seek help i was gonna say because the later character i kind of alluded to but then it also shows up with uh, suzume's aunt and so i thought it was kind of thing of like maybe daijin is love and the other cat is more 
either hate or resentment, like maybe that idea. But what is, I mean, and then thinking maybe in the same vein as you, what does that have to do with these earthquake shattering worms? Yeah, because did you watch Fire of Love, the documentary? No, I don't know why it rings a bell, though. I'll look into it while you talk. I promise this has a point. But like one of the things I love about that documentary is that it goes in the idea of nature is this force that you cannot necessarily control. You can only help to work with or live in tandem with or attempt to fight it and accept the consequences. And that's kind of what I was getting from like the worms and the earthquakes and like the rainstorms like the movie is trying to get across. But it also brings to mind that, you know, if Daijin and the other Keystone are those elements, how do they tie into the power of nature? Because Sauta's whole closer mythology is that idea of, you know, we're trying to control nature. Like, this is just doors that just pop open as far as we're concerned. Like, there's no rhyme or reason necessarily to them. It's just kind of na- what nature does. And so to me, it kind of felt like that thing of there's one story with the keyhole and the worms and everything, and there's another with the keystones, but they do tie together somehow. And that is for another watch of the movie, Brandon, because yes. I don't have the answers for you. But before we move on, Fire of Love, big recommendation from you? Oh, yeah, it was on my own mentions last year. It is now on my list of knock that shit out. Although, okay. what, uh, sorry, one final point, because I know this is a positive for both of us. Uh, the music is fantastic. That was it. That was my last one before we go into ratings. Um, music's, you're our music guy, but for myself, man, I mean, where do you begin with this? Uh, I've definitely started playing the soundtrack on my Spotify. Uh, perfect to work to, perfect to walk to, perfect to just be in because it, it, it has the types of, um, you know, when we talk about the soundtrack, and then the score, I love everything that they provided in with the bells, you know, the soft chimes that you hear throughout this film, uh, whether they're not chimes or they're just like the ripples of water that they're walking into. Um, every soundscape feels just perfect for this setting. And I think that when it comes to production, this is a film that makes sense. Okay, hold on. We've talked about things that don't make sense, but it makes majority of sense, um, especially when they're all pulled together. So uh, those are my short comments on the music. It, it really is something special. And from the trailer alone, I think that that's probably what hooked me before the visuals did. Yeah, the score real quickly is done by Radwimps, which is a J-rock band that I ever heard of, as well as uh, Kazuma Jinoichi. Um, score is fantastic. It's super diverse. Um, two quick points about it. One... There is an, there is a track early on that has, that gets reprised later during the movie. I'm the only guy who's going to care about this and I don't care. James Horner's score for Deep Impact, which is one of my favorite film scores of all time. There is a main piano melody in there. And I encourage you, I'll try and post the link to both these in the description. If you listen to them back to back, they are almost the exact same piano melody. And because it reprises like five times, I was like, that's just the Deep Impact theme. Like, what the heck? Um, and, but I loved it and it was terrific. Also, Sky Over Tokyo. I won't give any context, but between the vocal chants, the melody, the strings, it's one of the coolest film score tracks I've heard in recent years. It has so much heft to it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's brilliant. And I could, it's probably going to be in my like most repeated by the end of the year. Um, I can kick off ratings. Yeah, go ahead. This movie uh, is another example of, I think, memorable animated cinema. Um, it, I hope it provides... If not already, I hope it provides um, Shinkai the type of reach to a larger audience to uh, be invited into his film work, myself included, because I would love if animation of this style of this, and I'm kind of inflating it here, of this grand, grandiose, um, is definitely worthy of of more and more eyes on it. I 
I just love a film that looks so clean and this looks, sounds and feels so clean. Uh, let alone it's a, as much as it is a love story, I think it doesn't lose itself in the romance, in the romantic beats. I, I still think it is probably more of like an action, little bit of coming of my coming of age. I don't know. Like it's movie is honestly a lot of things, but what it's most of the time is entertaining, enjoyable and has heart where it matters. I think in the beginning, um, the middle and end, and it has a wonderful quote that I will share with you now. I've been given everything that matters a long time ago. And I thought that was something you had to hear, right? This movie is a seven and a half out of 10 for me, a big wreck. Please check this out. Uh, whether it's with yourself, with a friend, with your cat, just make sure you check out this film and then explore the catalog of Shinkai's work. Um, I will be doing the same. Yeah, I should quickly mention real quick, because you kind of alluded to it before. Uh, Japanese versus English version, I think both are very much worth your time getting into my rating. I do think the comedic beats are a bit more consistent in the Japanese version. I think there's a bit more like camaraderie between like the comedic moments. But I also think Josh Keaton, who verse, who is Spider-Man in like a ton of incarnations, who voices Sauta in the English version. Oh, honestly, might be a better Sauta. That's conversation for another day. Um, I'm really straddling the line between seven and a half and eight, just because, again... There's discussing with this with you. There's so much about this movie that I really, truly love. There's so much thematic resonance to it. The characters have great arcs to it. They're charming. The dialogue is great. You know, both the English and Japanese versions have really good just dialogue pacing, but also a great mix of fantastical elements that have a lot of resonancy. If you can dig just beyond the world building and if you look too much in the world building, it starts to get really annoying really fast. Um so I think I might agree with you. I might just go 7.5, just to make it easy. Um, that might get bumped up by the end of the year. Uh, it is playing in theaters for the time being. It's been out for a couple of weeks. Well, I do want to share that when I saw it, which was uh, earlier this week on Monday, so that would be May 1st, I only saw two screenings, and one of them was a 10 p.m. screening in Tempe. So, And that's not the city I live in. That's like, uh, it's, it's well on the other end of Phoenix. And so... Um, I hope it's still playing. I mean, widespread, but it, it was difficult to see this movie. So if you can't make it out to it, um, or if you have the chance to, I mean, you have to go like almost immediately. Like it, it is well worth that type of, um, timeline. Yeah. Again, apologies that we couldn't get to this earlier when it was more wide. It, it wasn't fairly wide. Really. It was my fault. It was my fault. Brandon saw this movie and I was hilariously under, I can't remember the reason, but I was like, Brandon, you saw, oh, yeah, we were exchanging text messages and I, then I went, oh, Brandon, I'm so sorry. I meant, <laughs> I meant to say that I wasn't going to watch it either. Um, but Brandon, actually, I got to this an episode prior. So blame is on me. I'll take it, you know, but I will not miss out on, a, on another Shinkai release the week or day of, man. I appreciate you getting to it because I feel like it was a really good discussion on it. And it's a movie where I think I needed to break down, much like Bo was explained, but it's, it, Bo was explained, Bo was afraid, but less than a more, Ah, and more of a ah kind of way. If you stuck with us this long, I hope we provided to you a a final review that you really felt engaged with and that you felt the energy from myself and Brandon as more stable and more um more supportive than us kind of being like, rain, rain, like poking it with a pitchfork. That'll do it for episode 49 for you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, next episode is episode 50. What the heck? Thank you all so much for supporting us this long. We're halfway to 100. 
how? How have we gotten this far? Um, if you want to support us, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, that's where you can find the show. Just search plot devices on there. Give us a follow and give us a rating where it is applicable. It helps boost the show to other audiences, uh, get the show to a larger audience and get this to a community that we can really engage with you guys with. And if you want to follow us on social media, just, you know, ask us random stuff. Twitter, Instagram at plot devices pod. That's Twitter, Instagram at plot devices pod and TikTok at plot devices podcast. Noah Guzman is my co-host for today. Noah, thank you as always uh, for indulging me in the good, the bad, and the writer's strike and everything in this probably overly long episode. I'm so sorry, future me, for having to deal with this. But Noah, where can people find you online? What are you enjoying nowadays? And uh, yeah, what's going on? You know me, I'm a gamer. I'm playing Dead Island Part 2. Uh, Dead Island 2 is the complete title and that recently released on Xbox. So I'm playing the hell out of that. Uh, I'm also watching Beef on Netflix, uh, Ali Wong and Steven Yun. Um Wonderful series. I'm only on the early episodes, so I can't wait to see how that film or that, how that series pushes forward. But my sister tells me it can't be confined. And so that makes me even all the more interested in wrapping it up soon. Uh, but beyond that, go ahead and give me a follow. You can check out, uh, I rarely, I never plug my Instagram, but I'll go ahead and plug it here. Instagram, it's Guapo Guzman. Go ahead and check me out. I'm always posting. Honestly, I'm a barb before I'm a film fan. And then you can check me out on Twitter. You can check me out at Noah's Plotting. And then go ahead and follow my TikTok page too. Hey, uh, it's going to be randomness, but hey, that's what you sign up for. It's going to be Noah, I'm him. Looks like Noah, him, him. That's part of the joke. <laughs> but that's all, Brandon. Thank you for another great episode. I can't believe we are honestly at 50. Like we are at 50's door. We are ready to open it. And I'm excited to see what worm comes through. Oh my God. I hope not. Because then we're going to get a cigarette. <laughs> You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band at CableBox underscore music. That's CableBox underscore music. Our debut single, Wish, is out on all audio platforms right now. If you want to support that, new gigs and material are coming very soon. Uh, and again, all that information, plus all the writer's strike info, will be in the description below. So for myself, from Noah Guzman, this is episode 49 of Plot Devices. And we'll see you guys in the attic from Bo's Afraid. Actually, I hope not. No, run, run, run! <laughs>